Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the familiarity? Familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. It's episode nine of eleven. Don't forget that there will be no Valar Reredis for three weeks, but we will still have new episodes going up during that span. After we finish Game of Thrones, but before A Clash of Kings, we'll have a wrap-up Q&A with guests Lady Gwynn and Sir Buckley. It will be part of the regular Valar Reredis schedule, meaning it'll be on a Sunday, most likely at 3 Eastern, like all the others have been. This time, we have Sansa 4. The gang gaslights Sansa about her father, a.k.a. the the one where they get Sansa to write letters or else she's a traitor. John 7, the one where John saves Mormon, a.k.a. the gang fights dead rangers. Brand 6, the one where Great John drops two digits, a.k.a. the gang calls the banners. Daenerys 6, the one where the poison wine cellar, the one with the poison wine cellar, a.k.a. the call promises to lead the gang to Westeros. Catelyn 8, the gang marches with the northern host, a.k.a. the one where Cat says you win or we die. Tyrion 7, the one where the clans meet the Lannisters, a.k.a. the gang meets Tywin. Sansa 5, the one where the Lannisters take, o- take over, a.k.a. the gang fires Sir Barristan. Eddard 15, the one where Varys convinces Ned to omit treason, a.k.a. the gang drinks wine in the black cells. You may have noticed there are eight this time. We needed to do eight this time to get it to divide evenly. And even though Sansa only has six chapters in the whole book, two of them are today. And we also have Ned's sigh. Last chapter. Hmm. It's a set of chapters heavy on resolution. Many of the things set up previously in other chapters are coming to roost now. There's a lot of Barristan in this episode, too. Our first look at Tywin, or relook at Tywin, rather, and several northern characters. Lots of them are getting ready for war, not only in the north, but in the south. So we start with Sansa 4. The gang gaslights Sansa about her father, a.k.a. the one where they get Sansa to write letters, or else she's a traitor. It's hard to blame Sansa for how this one goes down. I mean, it's a room full of plotters, people who were much better than at this, much more experienced at this, much more, uh, you know, lacking in scruples. Cersei, Littlefinger, Varys, even Pycelle, they're all arrayed against her, and they have leverage. This is really overwhelming. They came for Sansa on the third day. That's how it starts, and Sansa thinks that Jane is acting like a child because she's been crying for three days, while Sansa only cried the first day. This is probably or possibly meant as tragic irony because this moment comes as Sansa is trying to get Jane to stop crying by telling her that she'll ask Cersei to let Jane see her father, Vion. Jane may know what Sansa doesn't, that Vion is quite dead, along with Septa Mordain, Tom, Allen, and so many others. Joe Buckley points out that Jane, if we had her POV, might be thinking, no, you're the one acting like a child, Sansa. The next Sansa chapter is one we've nicknamed the one where the Lannisters take, a, take over, a.k.a. the gang fire Sir Barristan. But the signs are already there in this one. It's, it's pretty clear. The lions are everywhere and the stags are not. And hardly anyone else is. Sir Boros comes for her. Someone already referred to as the Queen's Creature by Littlefinger earlier. Today he wore white velvet and his snowy cloak was fastened with a lion brooch. 
The beast had the soft sheen of gold, and his eyes were tiny rubies. Of course, she's being misled at every turn here. She's naive and courteous, and they want to keep it that way. So despite all the blood and violence and screams of pain and crying, they tell her that she's being kept safe and that Joffrey would never forgive them if it were otherwise. (laughs) They essentially ignore her when she asks about Vian Poole and thinks to herself, She knew there had been fighting, but surely no one would harm a steward. Okay, sure, Sansa. (laughs) If that were true, they'd be even less likely to kill a Septa. But, well, hmm. And, you know, says to Cersei, I'm good. Ask Septa Mordane. <laughs> She'll tell you. <laughs> well, that Septa can't go telling anyone anything. But Sansa doesn't know this yet. Sansa thinks Cersei is gentle and that Joff only kills animals. She's so far blaming all the violence and, and stuff on other elements, even though she's not entirely clear on who those other elements are. So she's unhappy, but not suffering like Jane is. And is confident in everything, at least not to the level Jane is, is what I mean. She is suffering somewhat. But she's confident everything will be okay soon enough. Unlike Jane. Baros takes her to the council chambers, past carnage that's being cleaned up, and she's brought into the council chambers. She's blown away by how amazing the room is, particularly the wooden carved screen and the sphinxes. It's a room designed to overawe, and that's what they want to do to her. So it's a well-placed scene. Every, everyone is wearing black and mourning for the king, but Cersei looks decidedly Targaryen, perhaps meant as an insult to Robert, because, uh, you know, Robert hated the Targaryens. The queen wore a high-collared black silk gown with a hundred dark red rubies sewn into her bodice, covering her from neck to bosom. They were cut in the shape of teardrops, as if the queen were weeping blood. Cersei smiled to see her, and Sansa thought it was the sweetest and saddest smile she had ever seen. In her next chapter, Sansa's going to see Joff's morning garb, and like Cersei, it's the same style, basically, Targaryen colors. And at the end of the chapter, with a smile as warm as sunrise, Cersei kisses her gently. So you've been had, Sansa. She's not sad. She's not sweet either, certainly. She's scared, actually. Even though Robert's death was what she wanted, she has a lot of problems to deal with, Plenty that could go wrong. It's a bit of a tightrope situation. And, well, Cersei doesn't exactly handle it as well as a lot of other people could. But let's jump ahead briefly to Ned's chapter from this episode, which explains why Cersei is worried. Varys, when he's not lying, really explains things quite well. And this is him. So here is Cersei's nightmare. While her father and brother spend their power battling Starks and Tullys, Lord Stannis will land, proclaim himself king, and lop off her son's curly blonde head, and her own in the bargain, though I truly believe she cares more about the boy. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Not much to add to that. Varys just explains it, lays it out perfectly. And it's nasty. (laughs) So you see where Cersei's coming from with a lot of this. Now let's move on to what we're calling here a storm of bells. At sunset on the second day, a great bell began to ring. Its voice was deep and sonorous, and the long, slow clanging filled Sansa with a sense of dread. The ringing went on and on, and after a while, they heard other bells answering from the great sept of Baelor on Visenya's hill. The sound rumbled across the city like thunder, warning of the storm to come. As we continue to appreciate the foreshadow we missed before, one particular impact this time around is that seeing the word bell in the text means so much more than it used to, or at least it has the potential to. It certainly sets off alarm 
Uh, bells, right? Yeah. yeah. It's warning of the storm born to come. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Considering the Dothraki bells, the Battle of the Bells, John Connington, Danny, and how season ended, or season eight ended, rather, it makes sense that we're on the lookout, right? And these are the bells of King's Landing that Sansa and Jane are hearing, the same ones featured at the end of season eight. What is it? Jane asked, covering her ears. Why are they ringing the bells? The king is dead. Sansa could not say how she knew it, yet she did. The slow, endless clanging filled their room as mournful as a dirge. Had some enemy stormed the castle and murdered King Robert? Robert? Was that the meaning of the fighting they had heard? As mournful as a dirge, indeed. And will those bells ring in the fire? Hmm, maybe. Sansa will not likely be here for it, if so. But maybe. Next up, we have It Rhymes With Pain. And yeah, this isn't a fun part. What shall we do with this little friend of hers, my lords? Lord Peter leaned forward. I'll find a place for her. Not in the city, said the queen. Do you take me for a fool? Well, he does keep her in the city for quite a while. She doesn't head north until after Jamie makes it all the way back to King's Landing with Brienne, which is after the Red Wedding. Cersei is aware when Jane is sent to the north as fake Arya, but it doesn't seem as if she realizes it's Sansa's friend from the scene. She does know it's some steward's well, but it's not clear that she's priested altogether. Sansa will miss Jane at the end of the chapter and again later, and we wonder if she'll ever learn what's happened to her. She's not in the safest of places right now, sent to the wall by Stannis after she escaped with Theon. Stannis thinks he's sending Arya to Jon, but of course it's Jane. The wall is not so safe, as I said, but it's a huge improvement from where she was, being a captive of Littlefinger or the Boltons. I mean, who... She's ah, being captive of both of them at different times. That's rough. But she'll arrive to find Jon Snow stabbed. So she's still, you know, in great peril, it seems like. Nothing seems to go right for her. And she has broken ribs and probably frostbite. And Ramsay's still hunting her. So it's, it's bad. It's a brilliantly dark way to end the chapter with Sansa realizing she forgot to ask about Arya as she's thinking about Jane and how she goes right back to reading stories. It's really interesting. She's all throughout the chapter. She's trying to reconcile how these things aren't like songs, how they're not like the stories. And so it's kind of poignant to have her kind of sink back into that. And, and this is how she kind of gets herself to feel better, how she sort of resets herself. It's centering. And, and we even get the mentions of what story she's reading. It's the same familiar ones. Florian and Jonquil and Aemon the Dragon Knight and Nerys. The same character she mentions before. Precisely the same. Different pace and tone from the two previous chapters, setting up the message that Sansa will be staying in King's Landing and is going to be moving from Observer to one of two POVs in the city for a while. It's a heavy responsibility, diluting having three Stark POVs all down into Sansa's future here. And uh, it's interesting, some of the language here, Sansa and Jane fall asleep holding each other, quote, like sisters. And maybe when they were really young, Arya and Sansa fell asleep like that before they grew apart. It's interesting. Uh, certainly Sansa didn't have another sister to <laughs> fall asleep like that with. Um, Sansa thinks, like we said, that uh, or rather the, the servants not talking to her is something Sir Buckley points out that that's familiar in uh, Arianne's scenes when she's uh, Princess in the Tower down in Dorne. Good catch there. And speaking of armored courtesy, armoring herself in courtesy, a common refrain for Sansa. 
that she's quite good at. Uh, Cersei gives a perfect example of how politeness can be a weapon here. And Joe also points out, uh, mean, and what I mean by that, rather, is that Cersei's politeness is arrayed against Sansa, and it totally works, because Sansa mistakes it for politeness, not seeing all the ambition and cruelty and everything else behind it. Barristan is not in that meeting, and that is basically a small council meeting, and that could be a sign that They've already started to not include him in things, knowing that, you know, in just a couple chapters, they're about to kick him out. Littlefinger focuses on Hoster instead of Rob, and that's probably his personal bias. He hates Hoster Tully. And, of course, he hates Ned and John Aaron and these other guys. But Rob is just an extension of all that. He's not the direct object of hate. He doesn't really know Rob. And there's just even more and more creepiness from Littlefinger. Not just the stuff with Jane. Of course, that's even worse, but just the fact that he's just staring at Sansa and thinking and talking about how she looks like Catelyn, and yeah, it's uh, it sticks out even more because we know where it's leading, and you know, I think it's easy to maybe dismiss it as just, when you see in a story, uh, an older guy staring at a young, pretty girl, that's is it's gross, it's creepy, but you it's so common, too, so maybe it doesn't stand out as much until you know where it's going, and when you know where it's going, it really stands out because well, there's so much more to, to think about. So we do hope, like Joe also hopes like we do, or wonders like we do, if Jane and Sansa will be reunited someday. One thing I didn't consider is that not only will she find out what happened to her, but they'll, sh- she will be able to tell Sansa all this bad stuff about Littlefinger. Presumably Sansa will have learned a lot of this by herself and will already have plenty of reasons to be against Littlefinger. But it does perhaps add another angle to Littlefinger's eventual fall if we have someone else as a witness to all the bad things he's done. I did not really consider Jane surviving long enough to be part of Littlefinger's downfall. And that is, well, if she does survive, and I hope she does, that would be a um, a nice thing for her to help out with to to get a little measure of of justice. A little few random things here. The servants fled from her as if she had, quote, the Grey Plague. And that's the first ever time the Grey Plague is mentioned. And the Grey Plague, of course, is a nastier version of grayscale. They're cousins, I suppose. You could say cousin diseases. Here's a little quote. She warmed the pale she she warmed the pale white beeswax over a candle, pouring it carefully, and watched as the eunuch stamped each letter with the direwolf of House Stark. So Varys has the House Stark stamp, which is, that's, might matter. He probably got it from Vian Poole. The steward was probably the one in possession of it, which is kind of an ominous little piece of data here. We already probably assumed Van Poole was dead at this point, but this almost certainly seals the deal there. Mehrab Greywall from Facebook wonders about Mandon Moore's curiously dead eyes because it's mentioned a couple times. Yeah, I wonder about that, too. I wonder if George didn't have originally different plans for him. The fact that all he does is eventually turn on Tyrion and then die by Podrick means that, you know, they didn't really dig into his personality too much other than him being, you know, a vessel for assassination, proving that he was never really uh, deserving to be a Kingsguard in the first place. But I don't I don't have a, a bigger answer than that. I wonder if there's more to it. Uh, in reference to Littlefinger's creepiness towards Sansa, this we we find out it's later, much later through Cersei, that Littlefinger asked to marry Sansa, 
And we don't know when that was, but it might have been here. This might have been around that time because they, they're trying to figure out what to do with Sansa. They know that she's not going to marry Joffrey anymore, or they're at least considering that. They're very close to that decision if they haven't made it already. And maybe Littlefinger thought that, you know, doing this betrayal, hooking um, hooking Cersei and Joffrey up with the gold cloaks, turning on Ned, maybe he thought that would be his reward. Of course, it wasn't. Cersei rebuffs him and says he's too lowborn for that. And, of course, uh, that's what he's been hearing. That's what motivates Littlefinger, telling him he's not good enough, has been a big part of his uh, his whole life. And then he goes out and arranges the marriage between the Tyrells and the Lannisters and tells Cersei and the council that, hey, they're not going to let me be this agent of the crown. They're not going to take me seriously unless you make me a lord too. And then all of a sudden he is good enough. And there you go. That's that's Littlefinger in a nutshell right there. On the other hand, Rob, when he gets this letter, meaning the letter they force Sansa to write here, she writes four letters and, and Rob is one of the recipients, He's going to curse about the lack of news of Arya and asks, what's wrong with her? Now, first of all, Rob is young and naive, just, you know, less so than Sansa, maybe. But he doesn't realize what Catelyn realizes right away, which is, oh, come on. This is not Sansa's words. This is Cersei making Sansa write this. And, of course, she's right. She realizes that right away. And that's kind of maybe a sign of, of Rob's naivety in politics. Obviously, he is very talented in war and other things, tactics and, and bravery, but this, of course, his downfall is, is mismanaging politics, and this is perhaps a little sign of that. Bran, of course, blurts out that Sansa lost her wolf, as if that's the key part here, and that is, yeah, that hurts, and it might be accurate, but as we know, Sansa's going to probably circle back around and, and get back to Winterfell, and she still does pray to the old gods and things like that. So she's not totally detached in her mind, but she is detached in terms of, well, she's a hostage now and her family is not around her. Nina Friel wonders if Cersei is thinking here about the younger, more beautiful queen part of the prophecy, if she's already paranoid about who that might be, if she's, you know, thinking maybe it's Sansa. Uh, Sansa, when the idea for Sansa to marry Joffrey was first proposed by Robert, you wonder if that immediately set off those alarm bells in Cersei. And, the, you know, of course, Danny is the more likely person that, that the prophecy is pointing to. And Cersei may or may not have considered Danny. She's certainly aware of Danny. She's not on the small council yet, although she will be by the end of this episode. And so she wasn't there for all these discussions of, of taking out Danny. But she's surely aware that this Targ princess is out there because Viserys and, and Daenerys escaping was pretty common knowledge. Uh, so she's got to know. All right, that's it for Sansa 4. Let's go to John 7, the one where John saves Mormont, a.k.a. the gang fights dead rangers, also known as the one where John tries to stab Sir Alicer. This chapter really stands out as one that would fit in quite well as a horror story, and it almost fits as a standalone. I was considering how, just thinking about that, there's a couple of things you'd have to take out because they're referencing other plot lines that, that don't really matter or wouldn't be relevant if it was a standalone, but it does work pretty well as a standalone from what, from where I can tell. A lot of other people notice this theme too. The, the horror theme is really prominent. Um, George does, is a really good horror writer and he doesn't put a lot of horror into Song of Ice and Fire considering how large the series is, but when he does it, it's, it's really good. Of course, the prologue was probably the last time we had anything like this. And there's definitely, obviously there's more to come. There's going to be more examples like this, but he's just getting started 
in, in book one here. So he is, um, John is now the Lord Commander's steward, and we see that this day is unusually warm, which matters quite a lot since the lack of rot and maggots and such are disturbing and confusing. If it had been really cold, well, they might not be wondering why there's no maggots and rotting. So that's really important for this moment. Other announced Sir Jeremy Riker, beyond a doubt, and this one was Jay for Flowers. He turned the corpse over with his foot, and the dead white face stared up at the overcast sky with blue, blue eyes. They were Ben Stark's men, both of them. Blue, blue eyes. <laughs> that emphasis really stands out the second time through if it didn't the first time. Jafer's hand was the one ghost brought to them. And if you think about it, I suppose the way that went was ghost smelled the bodies, then saw them after you know, sniffing down the scent, following the trail of the scent, rather. Then ripped off a hand to go bring it to John. I guess that's what happened. That's maybe ghost was guided a little by you-know-who. Name rhymes with Flood Maven. This hand is the same hand that Alistair Thorne takes to Tyrion, who is acting hand at the time. But Tyrion doesn't like Alistair, because, and which that's just crazy, because everyone loves Sir Alistair Thorne. They almost named that show Everyone Loves Raymond, Everyone Loves Sir Alistair Thorne. It's the first time anyone's ever disliked him, really. It's, this is a really amazing. <laughs> and of course, Tyrion, as we know, he makes Alistair wait. That's what he does because he doesn't like him, he's like, I'm going to make that dude wait. And during that waiting period, the hand rots away. So it's kind of a minor tragic irony that these two people hating each other caused this possible piece of evidence that could have really stirred people uh, to action just was completely wasted opportunity. John immediately realizes what a green boy he was in pleading to go with Benjamin. He sees these, these dead men and realizes, well, these experienced rangers were killed. What would happen to me? And the discussion turns to the details here. At first, Mormon is angry that they were killed so close to the wall without anyone knowing about it, especially the fact that Othor carries a horn here. Sir Jeremy Riker is the main voice arguing against magic and the undead here. He argues it was wildlings. It's kind of like It's kind of like Ned Stark being like, well, what else could it be? How could it be the undead? That doesn't make any sense. There's no undead. But he seems to change his tune as Sam's arguments roll out, and he semi-convinces himself when he when Dywin points out that Arthur didn't have blue eyes, and he blurts out, neither did Jafer. And everyone's just freaked out at that point. It's a really that's part of what we're talking about when saying it's a really amazing piece of horror writing here. However, said details, aka dead details reveal that they were not killed here. Rather, they were likely left here, intended to be found, intended to be taken inside for closer inspection, perhaps, because of the odd details. Too curious to just discard? Maybe that was uh, what the others were thinking. From their point of view, you know, the Night's Watch will be spooked, but also curious, and will want to examine these bodies. And that's exactly what they want. It, it plays into their hands. Certainly worked if that was the plan. So what, what actually happened to Benjen and his men? Well, there's still some details we're not privy to. Hopefully we'll find out later. But it seems like Benjen's party was taken. The others must have been there because, well, there was raising of the dead. And it wasn't, so it wasn't just an encounter with whites. And we know that because 
it looks like Jafer appears to have killed Othor. Uh, or rather, other way around. Othor killed Jafer because uh, Jafer was killed by an axe, and Othor did have an axe. But the axe wasn't present there, which is more evidence that the killing happened elsewhere and the bodies were just left there. But again, no sign of Benjen, no evidence of what would have happened to him. <clears throat> so was he saved by the children, as is depicted in the show, or is he captured by the others, which has been a long-term theory that the others wanted his blood or that the fact that having a Stark is important to them. Lots of theories still abound, and most of them are still on the table because the show did, uh, didn't really tackle that with, with much um, depth. This next part I've called The Dead Now, The Dead Later. As he's staring down at what we know are whites, well, it takes John to a dream, a dream of the dead rising in the crypts of Winterfell. Last night, he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time, the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening, one after the other. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold, black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. Even when Ghost leapt up on the table to, on the bed to nuzzle at his face, he could not shake his deep sense of terror. Again, Ghost is John's, you know, refuge, his uh, safety. And uh, that, of course, is building up to maybe when John dies, his spirit going into Ghost. Note how it also says that uh, John was searching for his father descending into the crypts. Is this a reference to Rhaegar or Ned? We don't, it's not clear. It's kind of metaphorical. We don't see the father he's looking for. Of course, down in the crypts of Winterfell, he's not going to find Rhaegar. He's not going to find Ned either, though he will soon. And, and Rickon and Bran will have their own dreams of Ned's death soon. Uh, of course, there might be clues to his parentage down in the crypts. It just won't be uh, his father. And Rhaegar has been dead for a while. So, I don't know. I'm not sure which is re being referred to here, whether it's Rhaegar or Ned. When he, when he says father, John doesn't find them in either case. And as for the dead rising, that seems to be the more prominent part of this. Mormont does order a more thorough search of the area. And, well... That falls to First Ranger Sir Jeremy Riker here. Sir Jeremy, however, is killed by the Jafer Flowers White, along with several other men. But first, Robert, the man who killed John's father, is dead. And that news reaches the wall. The things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember that. My son loved that young life of his, vain woman. If not for her... He would never have thought to sell those poachers. Of course, he's referring to the fact that Robert was killed while hunting, and Robert loved hunting. But of course, <laughs> Gior, uh, Gior is being a little bit of a uh, homer here, favoring his son, blaming the expensive taste of his wife and not his slaving son. Anyway, the larger point is the major concern here, love versus duty. It's a recurring major theme in the series, especially at the wall. And this conversation he's going to soon have with Maester Aemon in the next episode. And with regard to the Kingsguard as well, which are going to come up big in this episode and later. And in cases like Danny going with her perceived duty to, say, marry Hisdar versus her love for, say, Dario. And when John considers the idea of Ned Stark on the wall, which Ned Stark will consider himself a bit later, 
he shows that his read on Joffrey was very perceptive. John, that is. And would Joffrey allow it? He remembered the prince at Winterfell, the way he mocked Rob and Sir Roderick in the yard. John himself, he had scarcely even noticed. Bastards were beneath even his contempt. There's that bastard irony with John and Joffrey yet again coming up. And of course, what he's saying is, would Joffrey allow Ned Stark to take the black? The answer is no, at least not if he's uh, getting advice from Littlefinger. So John's temper gets the best of him when he hears Sir Alistair call his father a traitor. John losing his temper is something that happens a few times. It's very interesting. It's not, it's maybe meant to point to his Targaryen fire in his blood, but really Rhaegar was a calm kind of guy. And Brandon, Ned's older brother, was the one that this seems most like. Uh, But Lyanna had it too. So really this is Lyanna that he's channeling, probably most of all. Now, of course, Sir Alistair has long felt that Ned Stark was a traitor. It's not just because of John and not just because of what's just happened uh, with Ned and his handship. It's because Ned was a key leader in overthrowing Ares and Sir Alistair was loyal to Ares. So this must all seem like karma to Sir Alistair. John's friends save him twice. Here, they stop him from harming Alistair and later they bring him back from trying to desert. So good job picking your friends well, John. Some notable moments from the action here. It's interesting that the Whites can be stealthy. The guard outside John's door was killed without waking John. And there doesn't seem to be a struggle. The man never even drew his sword. And we know that because John draws his sword for him when he's, uh, you know, coming out of his room finding this dead man. He's like, well, I better arm myself. He obviously doesn't have Longclaw yet. We learn a few other things about the Whites here, too. Things that might help us understand some things later when the number of whites in the story grows dramatically and we see them more often and we get more data on how they operate. I'm not sure the great strength that Othor is showing off here is entirely a product of magic, though it probably helps. But Othor was a large man, so he was probably pretty strong already. And that might carry over. The two dead rangers certainly seem to have memories that were useful to the others as one went for the first ranger and the other for the Lord Commander. That's very precise. There's no way that was random. I mean, you target the two top officers in, in the entire Night's Watch. Interesting that they didn't target Maester Aemon, but eh, anyway. John thinks the same thing, though, that it was uh, rather... John wonders, too, about this, this targeting. Can they talk? asked Jon Snow. I think not, but I cannot claim to know. Monsters they may be, but they were men before they died. How much remains? The one I slew was intent on killing Lord Commander Mormont. Plainly, it remembered who he was and where to find him. It's interesting, too, that he uses the term monster because Cold Hands says, you know, I'm your monster, Brandon Stark. There are a lot of places Bloodraven might have taken control of an animal in the series. There's just so many. And when we did our Bloodraven episode... We focused on a few examples rather than just trying to pick every possible example out because really it would take so long to do that. So we just focus on the most compelling ones. And of course, some examples, the Mother Direwolf is one, Balerion the Cat perhaps, certainly Mormont's Raven. That's one of the most blatant, perhaps the most blatant. And unprompted, it does this as John and Ghost are struggling to deal with the Othor White. Staggering to his feet, He kicked the arm away and snatched the lamp from the old bear's fingers. The flame flickered and almost died. Burn, the raven cod. Burn, burn, burn. Just to be sure, I checked to see if the raven ever yells burn again. 
He does not. This is the only time. So far, maybe it'll happen again. He does say corn quite a lot more, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the animals, too. And thinking, interesting to think about the animals, how the dogs and insects and other animals apparently stay away from the whites, but not ghost. He's happy to go right up and start munching. What does that mean? <laughs> and this sets the cl- sets clues for Chet's prologue later in a storm of swords, or later in the beginning of a storm of swords, with the dogs not taking the scent there either. Uh, Joe Buckley points out that this line that Gior says, I knew some of the king's counselors in my youth, Old Pacell, Lord Stannis, Sir Barristan. Interesting. Did Gior also journey south to fight in the rebellion? We don't know. Like, I don't think he would have been, or he would have been, he would have taken the black by the time of Balon's rebellion, I believe, but he might have fought in Robert's rebellion. That's interesting. And if not that, then maybe he had t- a reason to go to court prior to the rebellion. Um, Joe points out something that I that none of us needed to remember, but, but it's funny to remember that when John is struggling with Othor, the white shoves his fingers in his mouth, and it's just what a gory, gross detail. It just adds to the horror of the scene. It's like, ugh. It's not bloody. It's not like, it doesn't seem dangerous. It's just really gross. And just if you think about that happening to you, it's just the kind of, you, you think of danger and suffering and pain in, in situations like that and, and being in danger and, and, you know, being in, in danger of being killed, not being the taste of, of, of dead person's hand in your mouth. It's just a new way to make the scene more gross. Very creative, George, in a dark, dark way. <laughs> Noga Frankel from Facebook points out that Sam saved Alistair Thorne. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, he really did. He's the one that gets in the way first of uh, John sticking his dagger in Alistair Thorne's face. And that is uh, that is kind of ironic because Alistair Thorne was really horrible to Sam. But of course, Sam is saving John, not Alistair. It's just, it's funny to think of it this way. And it is true. Also, Noga wonders about them letting keep letting John keep Ghost in his room when he's in basically in prison under house arrest, and that's probably just because well, what else are they going to do with Ghost, right? <laughs> Everybody's kind of afraid of Ghost, and they don't want to. <laughs> John's the only one that keeps him calm, and yeah, he's intimidating. Just let the wolf stay in there where you know no one else is going to be harmed or scared by him. Earlier in the book, Robert ordered Ned to drink with him, and here we have Mormont doing that to John. And later, Cersei is going to order Sansa to drink with her during the Battle of the Blackwater. That's much later in the Clash of Kings. And, That's uh, a lot of, I wouldn't call it peer pressure. I would call it, you know. <laughs> Adults power, forcing but, yeah. teenagers to drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, not Ned, but still. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, speaking of drinking, um, the phrase pale as milk is used a few times here. Both Sam turning pale as milk and the dead bodies. I don't think that's a reference to like Sam dying, but I do think it shows you that maybe there's a, um, the, the pale as milk, you go, it's like a, a fear thing. And the whites are so scary that they turn you as white as they are, <laughs> as they're scaring you. And uh, yeah, and then they turn you into one of them. You're already the right color when they kill you. Well, what kind of milk? <laughs> Whole milk? Skim milk? No, whole milk, right? Mm. <laughs> 2%. 2% milk. <laughs> so, of course, the black hands are a big part of this as well. We talked about cold hands a bit and the description of the of the, hand, of the blood pooling up at their hands. And, uh, well, that'll probably come up again. 
whole armies of whites looking like that. The show didn't give them that detail, but I, I forgive them for that. <laughs> That's a, that would be a lot of extra costuming, making all the whites' hands black. Yeah, don't mind that too much. Okay, brand six. Uh, usually, as I say, it's I try to pick out which chapter I think is maybe the most important. And, you know, the first time through, on a first time read, it's probably the Ned chapter. Uh, but for a reread, I think it's this one. There's so much going on. I'm just, again, just blown away by how much happens in brand chapters. You just have almost every plot line that we've gotten up to so far referred to. You've got old God stuff. You've got the war. You've got uh, OSHA. You've got... Um, all this, you get news from the South, you have ladies' bones arriving, you have Rickon's wildness, uh, you have so much sadness, uh, you have, and since this is a reread, we see all these Northern Lords and know that so many of them are going to die, we see, we know that Lord Karstark is going to betray Rob, and that Rob and Bran won't see each other again, it's just really sad, it's, again, it's the one where Great John drops two digits, aka the gang calls the banners, uh, it's, also, you could call it the one where Rob rides the wrong way, the one where Bran becomes the Stark in Winterfell, the one where he gets to know Osha and the old gods, the one where he thinks of himself as Bran the Broken for the I, first time. I think one of the best titles so far is the one where Rob rides the wrong way. <laughs> it's just fun to say. Rob rides the wrong way. You're right. It really is alliterative, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the one where Rob rides the wrong way. the where. <laughs> the one where Rob rides the wrong way. Yeah, you're right. That's really good. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. And we also see that Bran has begun riding Hodor's back in a basket. Speaking of riding, and he's riding the right way. He's getting used to people, uh, to dealing, rather, with people mocking him. The car Starks came in on a cold, windy morning, bringing 300 horsemen and, new, and near 2,000 foot from their castle at Carhold. It's some of these men who laugh at him and Hodor, but a moment later he calls Summer over to himself, and the horses get a scare, and a lot of the and a lot of the men riding them are like, "Whoa!" And I wonder if Bran was kind of like getting them back a little bit for that. Much later, when the Car Starks split from the Starks, some of these men will be among those hunting the man who crippled the boy they are now laughing at. If that didn't make sense, well, remember that the Car Stark are going to abandon Rob and go hunt Jamie in the Riverlands because Lord Car Stark gave. Big reward for anyone who got Jamie, and that is the hand of his daughter. And so these Karstark brothers, uh, a, few, a little while later in the chapter, Bran overhears them describing him as broken inside as well as out. It goes too far. That make that really upsets him, and that's when he thinks of himself as Bran the Broken. And it's so very similar to what Jamie says about wanting a clean death to Tyrion. A very similar sentiment. Now, two of these Karstark brothers, the two young ones, the very ones who insult Bran here will die defending Rob against Jaime at the Whispering Wood. And it's their deaths that spur Lord Karstark's murder of the Lannister boys. So there's a lot of little uh, seeds in this moment that grow to be huge, deadly trees. I don't know, poison ivy? <laughs> the older brother is also here, meaning the older brother of Karstark. Now, he doesn't say anything bad about Bran, from what we can tell. It's his, it's his younger brothers that do. He seems to be polite. He is last seen as a captive at Maidenpool, and he may have, however, been given over to the crown. Uh, more on that in a minute, because a certain other character introduced here is also possibly given over to the crown in a prisoner transfer. There's some additional important description of Winterfell itself here. We already knew about the cold pool by the heart tree. Now we're told that there are precisely three hot pools fed by the underground hot springs. 
uh, in the general area that Hodor goes and has a nice long bath in. Bran thinks about how much Hodor loves those baths. Bran himself likes the godswood. But, but does he also think about the D? <laughs> does he? HBO did. HBO really did. Mm, they had OSHA. Give that one a wink. <laughs> not his real member, apparently. That was that was a, a stunt no, wang. Yeah, it was not. It was definitely not. <laughs> How about that? Stunt wangs. That's a thing. Stunt butts are a thing. Why not stunt wings? Yeah. Stunt breasts. Oh, every every part of the body has a stunt version out there. So, yeah, Bran does like the godswood and thinks about how the heart tree doesn't scare him anymore. So, clearly, it used to kind of scare him. In addition to getting used to what people are saying about him, he's used to getting, or he's getting used to the heart tree. So, it's kind of like he's becoming, well, he's becoming Bran, the Bran that we know more now. Uh, This is kind of part of that transformation. He's comforted at the thought of the old gods watching over him instead of it being scary. So, and of course, it's accurate, uh, the thought, meaning that they're watching over him. He's, he. They really are watching. Blood Raven tells him when he gets to his cave, I've been watching you since your birth. Seems <laughs> like, yeah, that's a long ass time, man. Oh. And this is what, um, here's a little quote. Tell me what you meant about hearing the gods. Osha studied him. You asked them and they're answering. Open your ears, listen. You'll hear. Bran listened. It's only the wind, he said after a moment, uncertain. The leaves are rustling rustling oh boy so one of our on an episode we did a long time back well that is the language used by george r martin uh, the old gods the speech of the werewoods rustling that phrase that word is so crucial here and osha flat out says it we hear you they hear you talking that rustling that's them talking back we go into great detail on this pattern in our werewood episodes so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. We've done that already, but it's a really big deal. It's a, it's the, it is the key to knowing when the old gods are speaking or when Bran is speaking through the heart tree. It, it happens when a Theon is looking at the heart tree and Bran is uh, maybe per, perhaps reaching out to him. So definitely key in on that. It is, it is, it is not a, a, a lightly used word. Rustling, rustle of the leaves. Russell of the Leaves. That sounds like some dude. Sir Russell of the Leaves. <laughs> Listen <laughs> for him. <laughs> yeah. So Osha also gives us more, though. It's not just about the werewoods and the old gods. She talks about giants and even goes so far as to describe half human, half giants. And she's inspired by seeing Hodor, which is pretty cool. Uh, this also references the TV show scene. <laughs> it's not just his body, but his uh, his member that uh, inspires her thoughts here and Lewin thinks it all also the... makes you think of torment it does you're right that's very true very true Lewin thinks all of these are wild tales and brushes off the idea that the children can teach brand magic well <laughs> he's wrong about that one ocean's got this one right for sure and a different kind of wild tale is being told about what's happened to ned rather many such tales. A common refrain for the series is that by the time news reaches other ears, it's the game of telephone has happened. There's, you know, it's been exaggerated. There's different versions of the rumor because they've gone through different channels to get there and each channel has its own quirks and who told the story and who retold the story and who exaggerated and how. And well, here's a passage with an interesting choice of words that leads us on into another plot line that's happening. 
two days ago, one of Lord Bolton's men knifed one of Lord Kerwin's at the smoking log. Our lady mother would skin me for a pelt if I let you put yourself at risk. Now, that is quite a pair of sentences. There's so much packed into that. Lord Medgar Kerwin is going to die in the South, and his son Clay will inherit only to die to Ramsay's duplicity during the taking of Winterfell. Lord Medgar's daughter Janelle is now the lady of Castle Kerwin, which is only a half day's ride from Winterfell. It's very close by. Of course, Rob talking about skinning and pelts is uh, on point here, describing the later Bolton betrayal of House Stark in a pivotal moment symbolizing that future betrayal or that pending betrayal is when Roos goes out to hunt wolves when he's at Harrenhal, killing many and using them for pelts and gloves. So perhaps it's no coincidence that this is the chapter where we first learn of the Dreadfort's skin room. Rob mentions it. And it's like, what? They have what? <laughs> A room of skins? Wow. Uh, Rickon's wildness here. It's very interesting to consider. He's quite out of control. He punched old Nan. Wow. It's not just, you know, a kid kind of acting out. It's worse than that. I mean, Shaggy channeling Rickon's wildness, he bites a, quote, a chunk of flesh from Micken's thigh. That's, that's a bad dog. <laughs> and, uh, but poor kid, because you know that's coming from from Rickon's uh, lack of parenting and, and confusion and, and frustrations and suffering. But that kind of wildness can come in large adult form too, like Tyrion's Vale clansman, who we'll get later in this episode. And, and now, right here, we get Great John. Something tells me Great John would love fierce little Rickon. And it's funny to think that, you know, in the show, the way that things go with Umbers and Rickon is, well, it's sad, but it could have, you know, you, you wish that this could have happened and hey i guess there's a small chance it could because well we're going to talk about it in a minute great john's still alive in the books uh and both of them great john and rickon have a little something in common here they both brandish a sword within a few paragraphs rickon does his down in the crypts when they're looking for him and he's hiding down there and great john of course does it more famously drawing his sword and you know gray wind bites his fingers so He's kind of a strange character, Great John, from a meta perspective, that is. The actor left the show after season two, so any chance that HBO would have revealed the book version of his fate left with him. He was captured during the Red Wedding, not killed. Jamie Lannister ordered the phrase to give him up to the crown, uh, but we don't know if that's actually happened. You know, Walder Frey may have just disobeyed, or maybe he's being the late Lord Frey, delaying that for a while. And we see what Small John Umber does on the TV show. And while Small John Umber in the books is killed during the Red Wedding, so it's in the books, it's Great John's uncles who are active now. On TV, Small John Umber just says, yeah, my father died, without any explanation of, of how. And it's pretty clear that they just did that because the actor left the show. So let's talk about the uncles just for a second. One of them is Morse, a.k.a. Crow Food. He grabs Theon and Jane after they jump and deliver them to Stannis. He's clearly not working for Roose Bolton. <laughs> he also digs pit traps that kills uh, Aenys Frey uh, right outside Winterfell. The other uncle is Hother, a.k.a. Horace Bane, who bends the knee to Roos, but does it under duress and shows many signs of wanting to fight the Boltons if the chance comes. So maybe he's just, he seems to be biding his time. And a, some evidence of this is that uh, the uh, Moors wants Stannis to forgive Horace Bane 
which is kind of an evidence that uh, this was a plan all along. Also, though, it's confusing because Book Great John has other sons. It's not just Small John. Uh, though they might be on the younger side, we don't really know. And, and even more confusing because the Small John also has sons. So there's basically a lot of untapped umbers in the story. And though they lose a lot of soldiers at the Red Wedding, only one actual umber dies there, Small John, and none elsewhere. So there's a lot of umbers left just out there. And so, well, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Hodor, Bran agreed, wondering what it meant. Yeah, and that's the way the chapter ends. And of course, we know what it means, but what a line to have here in a chapter packed full of so many different plot lines. We get reference to one that we didn't even know was a plot line at the time. I mean, we didn't think, even back then, I never thought Hodor's name would... I mean, we knew that he had a different name than Hodor. It was probably Walder, right? But the idea that there would be a big reveal in addition to him having a different name, I don't think that probably not even one fan in a thousand was sniffed out that one. So this line is just really jumps out <laughs> this time around, like so many others do. But this one, this one in particular. Joe Buckley points out that the imprisonment of Ned surely hurried the marches of the Northern Lords. We shouldn't pretend they haven't also come to see what they can get out of the new young wolf. As you can see from Great John and Roose Bolton and Lord Hornwood, they test him in a variety of ways, usually trying to get something out of him. Different things they want to get out of him, whether it's land, regard, command positions. It's, it's, it's different. But you can see that they all want something. Maybe they're, in some ways, they're a little more blunt about it, but in other ways, they're just as sneaky as the Southerners by hiding what they're really wanting, by disguising their ambition, by uh, pretending to be nice when really it's just something for their benefit. Wyman Manderley is going to be doing quite a lot of this later. Uh, and it's a, it's a varying, you get a varying uh, range here of loyalty versus ambition. All these lords have some level of loyalty and some level of ambition, and sometimes those things are completely opposed, like in the case of Roose Bolton, and sometimes they're very well lined up. In other words, uh, Roose Bolton's ambition is, turns him against the Starks, though it didn't have to go that way. But with the Manderleys, his ambition is framed with loyalty to the Starks. He is very ambitious, but turning on the Starks isn't an option. He still is ambitious within that uh, set of rules, you could call it, within his honor. So that's, uh, it's, I like seeing that here. We, we, some of us think that maybe the North is less political, and maybe it is. It's just diff. but I think maybe it's more, maybe more accurate to say differently political. You know, not more or less, just different. The culture is different. The weather is different. The trends are different. The backgrounds are different. The traditions are different. Lots of things are different. But people are still ambitious. People are still cruel. People are still power-hungry. People are still uh, still have blood uh, blood debts and vendettas, things like that. Joe, Joe also points out that Great John loses some fingers but rises to be a right-hand man, kind of like Davos. Good catch. There's a lot of hands-in-hand hand kind of things going on in this series. There's a lot of hand injuries and, and people who might be hand or who are right-hand mans having things go wrong with their hand. John Connington's another one. He's uh, obviously... Uh, Aegon, the sixth young Griff's right-hand man, and his, uh, I think it's his left hand, though, that gets, uh, that gets grayscale, but still, similar enough. And we have uh, more about Connington later in this episode, too. He's going to come back up. 
So referring to Rob marching the wrong way, Joe points out that it's a really good placement to have that message um, immediately following John's chapter, which backs up OSHA's argument that they're marching the wrong way. It's not just, uh, oh, yeah, we saw that happen in the prologue. So, yeah, it makes sense that they're marching the wrong way. It's, it's apparent immediately. Very good. Uh, in other words, the, the chapter ordering is really done well here. And a couple of questions and comments from y'all. Uh, mostly, a couple of people pointed out that Kat makes the same argument, or at least thinks in her head, the same thing that Bran and Lewin both say here, which is Rob doesn't have to lead the Northern Host himself. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Rob disagrees, clearly. And Rob was right. If we're, if we're being... Uh, for being honest, maybe Rob should have had someone else managing the politics for him. But as far as leading the battles, him and Blackfish and whatever else advice he was getting from others, that <laughs> I don't think anyone else could have done that better. So Rob uh, knew better than they did, but uh, at least on that regard. A couple of people pointed out as well that the Manderley footmen have tridents, which is really cool. They're, uh, they have fancier spears, basically. The tridents would almost certainly cost a lot more to make than spears, but the Manderleys can afford it. I wonder how practical they are in battle. I've never really seen Trident, like a whole squadron, let alone a, a whole 1,500 men or whatever it was uh, with Tridents. Uh, I wonder how that would work. I'm very curious. I wonder if anyone has thoughts on that. I don't know that there's any real-world analog for actual armies armed with Tridents. Aquaman and his men. No, oh, of course. I didn't think women. of that real-world example. Yeah. <laughs> Aqua, Aqua Drogo. Yeah. Uh, Kalara from uh, patron Kalara uh, talks about Bran describing the godswood as becoming to him, quote, an island of peace in the sea of chaos that Winterfell had become. To her, that makes her think of uh, season eight, episode three, with Bran waiting in the godswood as, you know, bait. And uh, it's kind of an island of temporary peace amidst battle. She wonders if she's stretching this too far or could this suggest a similar showdown in the books? Well, I don't know that there'll be a similar showdown with Bran in the godswood there at Winterfell. It could be. But, of course, the lack of a, of a Night King makes this a little bit more difficult. Um, but I do – this line does say something else to me that's interesting, and it might relate uh, kind of an oblique way to what Kilar is saying here. Because the Island of Peace and the Sea of Chaos, to me, that sounds like the Isle of Faces, this, this sort of untouched thing directly in the center of Westeros. And it's literally an island and Westeros itself is this, you could call it a sea of chaos because of all the humanity and, and the, the Game of Thrones being played generation to generation, so many wars being fought. Meanwhile, the Isle of Faces just sits there and no one goes there and it just kind of remains the way it's always been. I mean, I guess so. I don't know what's really, maybe for all we know, they're partying on there and <laughs> constantly doing stuff. But that's really interesting because touching back on season eight, episode three, as Kilara points out, a lot of us at the time seeing that episode wondered if what Winterfell might fall with Stannis running it. And the great battle that humanity will face the others in will be at Harrenhal. Um, and there's a lot of reasons to think it would happen there instead. One of them being Danny sees herself in a vision melting an army of ice at the Trident. For another reason, Harrenhal just has all this foreshadowing for fitting so many people in it at once. It just is this wonderful place for it's set up so well for uh, a last stand for fitting so many different types of armies in it. And it happens to be right by the Isle of Faces, which has a lot of foreshadowing for being important in ways that we aren't quite clear on. So I, I think that's a great comment by Kilara. 
because it uh, it touches on a lot of these elements uh, that are far off in the future that are probably being referenced here. And the reason they're maybe a little more vague is George probably hadn't worked all of it quite out yet, but he knew some of these important pieces enough to, to hint us in the right direction. So I think that's very important. Speaking of the Isle of Faces, it's uh, the name of Sir Buckley's podcast. Check it out. They do Scraps and Scrolls, which is sort of the expansion of things we talked about during each episode of Valar Reread Us. Let us move on to Daenerys 6, the one with the poison wine cellar, a.k.a. the call promises to lead the gang to Westeros. The one where Drogo hunts the Hrakar. The one where Danny puts her eggs in the fire the first time. When he had taken his pleasure, Hal Drogo rose from their sleeping mats to tower over her. The call says Rago has no need of an iron chair and speaks of plundering the lands around the Jade Sea. That's beyond the Bone Mountains, certainly farther than I'd expect a Kalasar to travel. But in the same passage, Danny thinks of how the call is bolder than other Dothraki in half a hundred ways. So, well, there you go. And it would make sense that someone bolder than other Dothraki would want to go farther. And of course, that might be why Illyrio and Varys picked this guy in the first place, because of that boldness. They need someone who would be willing to cross the poison water that no Dothraki has ever done. But all that is also kind of George being sneaky. I mean, did they really want them to actually cross, though? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think they wanted to, to to save the realm like they're going to. To have to have Fagon be the, the hero and okay, save the realm save and all that. save it from her, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of different people that he could potentially be saving people from. <laughs> That's true. Unless they just hedge their bet. Anyways, whatever. Yeah. It's not. It's certainly not a sure thing, but that is. I do believe that's accurate. And uh, this is also screening an even bigger surprise, which is not a surprise to us, but at the time, Drogo's death, pretty powerful, pretty surprising, not, uh, not, not expected by a lot of people. I remember having a friend, my friend Joe, reading this book for the first time back in like 2002 or three or four, and him saying to me, I can't wait for Khal Drogo to go over to Westeros and kick all this ass. And I'm like, man, you might not want to get attached to any particular character here. <laughs> So it was surprising, and especially because Ned's death is going to come so close to, to Drogo's, and, well, that uh, several surprises built in there. It's just like one surprise after another. Now, speaking of building up to something, here's a pretty big line from Danny. She wondered if the gods of burned cities could still answer prayers. Whoa! The gods of burned cities! hey that's a big one. That's a real big one. That's a line that I didn't think much of of any of the first 10, 12, 15 times I read it. But this time, hey, that matters. Uh, speaking of things that weren't in the show uh, or that referenced the show or that we wanted, wanted to have in the show, the Dothraki markets, great example of world building that the show didn't really have. It's greater depth of Dothraki culture featured in the books. Uh, the wine seller's poison aside, he mentions... Uh, his other wines from Tyrosh, Lys, Mir, Andalos, Volantis, Dorn, and the Arbor. There's also perfumes from Lys, which is uh, reflecting its position as a city of pleasure and leisure. And we get to, you know, poisoners from Lys. He is himself from Lys, this poisoner, which uh, is maybe easy to miss because in the show he's portrayed like a lot of people as, a, you know, brown-haired, brown-eyed guy. He doesn't uh, have the look of a Lysine. But in the, in the books here, he's blonde. He does look like a Lysene. Uh, we also see in the market a woman selling Lannisport gold work, which shows just not only how 
important the gold work of Lannisport is, but the fact that it is reached all the way out here to the Thraki market is just really neat to show the, the great variety that's here. We also have a Yeetie cloth trader haggling over green dye that I would guess came from Tyrosh, and he's wearing a monkey-tailed hat. And that monkey-tailed hat is, well, that's a reference to Azor High of all things. Here we go. It is also written that there are annals in a shy of such a darkness and of a hero who fought against it with a red sword. His seeds are his seeds. His deeds are said to have been performed before the rise of Valyria in the earliest age when old Gis is when old Gis was still forming its empire. The this legend has spread west from Ashai, and the followers of Relor claim that this hero was named Azorehai, and prophecy has returned. In the Jade Compendium, Kalaquo Votar recounts an, a curious legend from Yiti, which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. Oh, there you go, the monkey's tail. So the Yitish still wear those monkey-tailed hats in honor of this woman, whoever she was. So that's very cool, very uh, obscure reference that is sort of the circle is maybe not completed, but added to in the world of ice and fire. Very cool. That caravans are allowed to travel from far and wide unharmed shows that the Dithraki are not purely warlike savages, which is something that uh, is kind of the impression we're given in a lot of places. Now, there's probably the occasional call who breaks this pact and attacks caravans, but likely enough, other calls would come for such a person. And she thinks on how they don't understand buying and selling, yet they host these extremely diverse and peaceful markets. That's that's really interesting. Though perhaps this chapter, the one with an attempted assassination on her, is not maybe the best example of showing a peaceful market. (laughs) But Varys and Illyrio had to accelerate their plan as the talk uh, that Arya overheard shows, and so I'm calling this next part Accelerating the Plan. A great caravan arrived during the night, Khaleesi. 400 horses from Pentos by way of Norvas and Kohor, under the command of merchant captain Bayan Votiris. Illyrio may have sent a letter. Would you care to visit the Western Market? My thinking here is Illyrio definitely sent a letter, but he may have sent this whole caravan. It's a merchant. Merchant Captain Bayan Votiris is Pentashi, apparently, and this this caravan came from Pentos, where Illyrio has enormous power. That's Illyrio's hood, Pentos. Joran knows this caravan might have a letter from Illyrio. uh, And, of course, there's a connection between Joran, Illyrio, and Varus, as we well know. Now, after the incident, Votiris arrives, and look at this quote. He seemed to know what had happened without a word being spoken. Hmm, yeah, hmm. What, at first what happens is Danny says to the wine cellar that she and Drogo will share the wine together. Now that's how the wine cellar expects to get away with it because obviously if she drinks it right there and dies, then he's toast too. But if she takes the wine back, Drogo and Danny drink it together, they both die, then he has a chance to collect his reward. But of course, killing Drogo would have messed up the plan big time. They wanted the call to invade, as we discussed earlier, and Jorah's interference is key in making sure the plan proceeds properly. Uh, Jorah shows Danny a letter revealing that a lordship is offered for Danny's death by Robert Baratheon. Of course, at this point, they don't know that Robert is now actually dead. Danny laughs without humor at how they don't know Viserys is dead. 
So, you know, news travels slowly. They're, they're really far apart. Vase uh, Dothrak is quite far from King's Landing. Now, Robert, of course, never had any control over the details of the plan to kill her and or Viserys. He just said he wanted it done. Just get it done. And so Varys had control of that, as we know. And, of course, with Varys's hand on the scale, he gets to manipulate things. Now, the notion that someone wants to murder her child upsets Danny to the point that it triggers his feelings. He would not weep, she decided. She would not weep, she decided. She would not shiver with fear. Again, Danny's fear is associated with shivering. There's shivering is a common refrain for her, as we pointed out last episode. Uh, but that's just a side point I wanted to remind you all of. Here's the main thing. The usurper had woken the dragon now, she told herself, and her eyes went to the dragon's eggs resting in their nest of dark velvet. The shifting lamplight uh, lined their stony scales, and shimmering motes of jade and scarlet and gold swam in the air around them like courtiers around a king. Was it madness that seized her then, born of fear, or some strange wisdom buried in her blood? Danny could not have said. She heard her own voice saying, Ser Jora, light the brazier. Some strange wisdom buried in her blood. That line is really huge. I mean, it was huge back then, too. But uh, I love the way that's written. Yeah, because what is this? Is this, this is a prophecy within her? Is this voices of her ancestors like what she sees in house of the undying uh it's it's unclear but she is compelled to do this it's definitely not just her own will though it's part her own will i believe but something else is happening it's really kind of unclear she shoves the eggs in and nothing happens and then she feels foolish wondering why she thought anything could happen here but of course only a few chapters later she does it again with a little more fanfare and a little more um well fire and blood and it does work but you got to think that again there's something in her some sort of magical force that's compelling her a bit danny is not alone drogo is of course drogo is upset too about this attempted murder keeping in mind how jorah is guiding things along here he says to the call remember jorah is behind partly behind this so he's got to kind of steer things in the right direction this poison this poisoner was the first sir jorah mormont warned him but he will not be the last Men will will risk much for a lordship. In other words, people will keep trying to kill your wife and child. That's what Jorah's saying to Drogo. Now, a warrior like Drogo has a very straightforward way of dealing with enemies. Well, you're coming for my kid and wife. I'm coming for you. He makes his vow beneath the mother of mountains, and it is a powerful thing. But declaring that he will rape their women and take their children of slaves is a clear sign that this this is not good. And it's also a clear sign that it's not actually what Varys and Illyria want. Well, not too much of it. They don't mind people suffering. They just want the call to lose. It's a bold plan, and they needed a call bold enough to do something no call had done before while also expecting him to be beaten. So it's a real tightrope walk here. He yells as the stars look down and witness. And a moment later, Khal Drogo led them on his great red stallion with Daenerys beside him on her silver. The red horse and the silver are the sun and the moon. My sun and stars, moon of my life. George likes to put that symbolism in there. And of course, with the red comet coming soon, it's about to get a lot stronger. A couple of notes from Sir Buckley here. Uh, At the beginning of the chapter, Drogo basically says, no, we're not going to cross the narrow sea. It's only because of this threat that motivates him. So kind of 
it gives the indication that the either Varus and Illyrio knew they'd have to do something like this, or that maybe they were aiming for something that was a little harder to get than they may have thought. But it also indicates that Viserys was kind of right, that Drogo didn't really have any intention of giving Viserys what he wanted. Um, get a lot more of uh, Danny's thirst for home than usual in this chapter. It comes up a lot. There's mentions of the Red Door, smells and uh, certain foods and things that take us black, take us back to certain places or times. Uh, those are that's kind of a very human thing, something we can all relate to. Um, smell triggering memory, and uh, George does a great job here getting that sense, that same sense across. The uh, lion skin. Here is a really important number. I mentioned in the beginning that Drogo went out to hunt the Hrakar, and we just had one king go on a hunt and die because of the wounds sustained. Here we have another. But this king uh, is a lot more capable. He isn't, uh, Drogo has not gone the way of Robert. He's still young and, and uh, fierce and didn't decline. Uh, so it's also kind of the same kind of trick that uh, George is pulling with thinking that Drogo is so strong and powerful and surely not likely to die anytime soon. But there's a little bit of symbolism here too. The lion skin, the Hrakar pelt is given to Danny and she keeps it until dance when she then removes it prior to having sex with Dario, which is kind of a, a changing of the guard, sort of, so to speak, changing of the lovers, so to speak. And of course, uh, eventually, uh, of course, skinning a lion is uh, pretty important for where Danny is going and who she's going to be facing off with. Personally, I just wanted to point out, I hadn't really seen this before, but at Con of Thrones this year, there were multiple Rockar cosplays. Yeah, it's kind of where like, that There were from, multiple right? in the cosplay contest, and I've never seen it at some one of these conventions. Anyways, a little aside from me. That was really cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'd forgotten about it, but you're right. It was kind of like, huh, I've never seen Rockar pelts before, but there were, yeah, you're right. There were like like three or four. Yeah, yeah, I like. know. I don't know. It was just, maybe some of them agreed to do it together. I, anyways. Yeah, good catch. Um, when Danny thinks it's odd that Jorah doesn't want her to come with him, she wonders if it's because he's going to find himself a woman. She thinks how some men are queerly shy about their couplings. Well, in A Dance of Dragons, when Jorah and Tyrion bump into each other in the brothel, he's with a woman that looks like Danny. So, yeah, we know Jorah wasn't actually going to look for a woman in this scene, but indeed, he would not have wanted her to see that. So it's kind of a little hidden humor there. Yeah, and obviously you bring up here that, you know, Jorah's ex-wife, Lynn Hightower, looks a bit like Danny. And when he points that out, Danny gets like this kind of like, ooh, kind of feeling like, whoa, that tells me something that I didn't know that is not good. She gets creeped out, as she should. <laughs> and when Danny falls during this scuffle with the wine cellar, she avoids falling on her belly, similar to when they battle outside Mary Mazdur's ritual tent. So she's got these two cases where she uh, is almost falls down and lands on her belly, but it is, is, manages to avoid it at the last second. Andrew M. and some others are keeping an eye on where Danny's ambition begins, since Viserys is, is the first one to kind of impart it into her. But while Viserys is always like, oh, we're going home, we got to do this, we got to get the throne... She's not really that into it. She's like, she just wants to go home. She just wants to, like, have a chill life. But then, and then she has this ambition for Rago. So she doesn't really have it for herself until later. And a lot of people think that that's, it's kind of uh, when he, um, when she maybe 
burst the dragons, that that's when the ambition comes for her personally. Uh, Scott Wartman points out no need for iron chairs stands out much more now, now that we know that the iron throne is destroyed on TV, which may happen in the books as well. Good point by the call saying you don't need that. <laughs> that's a good one. Someone points out here that I was mistaken saying Bayan Votiris is from Pentos. He is Norvashi. Okay. Good catch. Good, um, Good to point that out. I was mistaken. Don't think it really changes uh, the likely loyalty here since the, Pen- uh, the caravan came from Pentos and the, given all the other details we laid out, but apparently the uh, cultural connection is not there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's do Catlin 8. The gang marches with the Northern Host, a.k.a. the one where Cat says you win or we die. It's the one where we meet the Manderley sons, Willis and Wyman, and see and learn more of the lords we just saw in Brand's chapter. Rob and Catlin plan the campaign strategy, some of which he'd worked out with Blackfish in advance, and it's the one where we get a look at, uh, look at and description of Moat Kalin, a place we'll come back to perhaps more than a few times. I kind of hope so. I like Moat Kalin. It's cool. It was too far to make out the banners clearly, but even though the drifting, even through the drifting fog, she could see that they were white with a dark smudge in their center that could only be the direwolf of Stark, gray upon its icy field. Banners remind us of the quote perception of power, which is a major theme throughout the books. You know, people like Varus and others bring up how much that matters. Melisandre, Euron, it's 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 all over the place. There's a lot of it in this chapter. Kat's very aware how tough and ambitious and aggressive the other lords are and how important it is for them to respect Rob. They, re- they review the letter sent by Sansa, and Kat points out that it's clearly Cersei behind these words. And she's right. Kat tells Rob that what Cersei tells Ned, essentially. Cersei is wise enough to know that she may need them to make her peace should the fighting go against her. What if the fighting doesn't go against her, Rob asked. What if it goes against us? Catelyn took his hand. Rob, I will not soften the truth for you. If you lose, there is no hope for any of us. They say there is naught but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. Remember the fate of Rhaegar's children. Yeah, that's quite a thing to say to Ned Stark's son, and it's true. Remember, uh, and, and she's right, you win or you die. And with Cersei, the one Cat is concerned about here, it all fits so nicely because Cat is because Cersei is the one who said that to Ned. Cat's 100% right. Speaking of being right, it seems to me that a man who has fought as many battles as Tywin Lannister won't be so easily surprised. And indeed, Roose Bolton does a night march trying to surprise Tywin, and it doesn't really work. Some people wonder if that was Roose's intention. He knew he was going to lose, but I don't really think so. I think he would have been happy with a victory, but he took a high-risk, strategy, high-risk, high-reward strategy. Let's talk a little bit about Moe Kalen. I call this part Tales from the Moat. A different form of power then the kind that's invoked by banners and crowns is sorcery, and that's mentioned here as well. The gatehouse tower looked sound enough and even boasted a few feet of standing wall to either side of it. The drunkard's tower, often the bog where the south and west walls had once met, leaned like a man about to spew a belly full of wine into the gutter. 
In the tall, slender children's tower, where legend said the children of the forest had once called upon their nameless gods to send the hammer of the waters, had lost half its crown. It looked as if some great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations along the tower top and spit the rubble across the bog. All three towers were green with moss. A tree was growing out of out between the stones on the north side of the gatehouse tower, its gnarled limbs festooned with ropey white blankets of ghost skin. What is ghost skin? Some kind of hanging moss, I suppose, like Spanish moss, perhaps, it, it but could, white? It could be ghost skin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have- actually, that's terrible. The idea of, of like, ghost skin, actually, like, their skins, you know, with ramp. Ramsey like displaying them all over Winterfell. Whoa, yikes! <laughs> Anyways, it actually can be really dark if you look at it as that word. But That's no, true. it probably is do- ghost skin. Yeah, ghost skin. Well, yes. the hammer of the waters, of course, is referred to here. We wonder if it's a real event or just a story. Did the children actually flood the area? Was it some sort of natural event? Or I don't know. Good question. More quoting here. Just beyond, through the mists, she glimpsed the walls and towers of Moat Kalin or what remained of them. Immense blocks of black basalt, each as large as a crofter's cottage, lay scattered and tumbled like a child's wooden blocks, half sunk in the soft, boggy soil. Nothing else remained of a curtain wall that had once stood as high as Winterfell's. The wooden keep was gone entirely, rotted away a thousand years past, with not so much as a timber to mark where it had stood. All that was left of the great stronghold of the first men were three towers, three where there had once been 20, if the tale-tellers could be believed. 20. The immense black basalt blocks, quote, each as large as a crofter's cottage, are not the product of simplistic builders and could be evidence of giants, Brandon the Builder, sorcery, or all of the above. 20. <laughs> there, were only been, there are only three now. Perhaps, though, if we're thinking the hammer of the water's broke this area. Perhaps it was called to smash this castle. You know, I mean, to me, that makes more sense in some ways that a large piece of sorcery would take out a work of humanity that the children didn't want to see there. Because otherwise, we're left with the idea that they built in the swamp, which is certainly possible, but that's has its own problems, all kinds of problems. So anyway, this is what we're told, though, is that this is where the magic was called down, as in they were in this fortress when they called down this sorcery. And they not only was the sorcery called down here to make this swamp, but it was the same spot where the spell was cast to break the arm of Dorne, which may indicate that this is some sort of hinge of the world. The fact that they apparently used the same spot twice is very telling. So the Regardless of what all the purpose was, regardless if the stories are wrong, it was effective in keeping out the Andals and is still effective in keeping out Southern invaders. It's a huge deterrent. Uh, It may have been even more effective in that regard back when it had walls and 20 towers, though. On the other hand, one of the towers is called the Children's Tower. And when we say that the spells were called down on Dorne, uh, on on this broken arm of Dorne, and here... It's said that the children's tower is where those spells were cast. It strikes me as odd that the children would cast spells from atop a tower. I would think that that's the kind of thing they would do 
in front of a heart tree or many heart trees, like on the Isle of Faces or like in that grove of 31 where the ghost of High Heart hangs out or in the grove of nine beyond the wall. Something ain't quite right about these legends is what I'm saying or several somethings. Definitely more food for thought. Keep all that in mind. What you hear about Moat Kalen, some of it doesn't really add up. Some of it kind of contradicts itself in some ways. And I think that there is a hope for us to learn more later, but do not take it at face value. The first one to kneel to Lady Catelyn is Helmand Tallheart, and the last is Theon. Theon later captures Helmand Tallheart's son, Sir Benfred, after ambushing him and killing his men. Then Aaron Damphair drowns Sir Benfred. Bruce Bolden asks Kat if she has Tyrion as hostage still and says, I vow we would make good use of such a hostage. He does that with Jamie instead later. Bruce Bolton, Rob said it once. That man scares me. But let us pray he will scare Tywin Lannister as well. He scares him enough to work w- with him later instead. <laughs> or no, in part because of the Jamie hostage bit, rather. Not keeping Jamie as a hostage, right? He, <laughs> he, uh... He has that line with Jamie where he says, and Lannister enmity means little to Bolton. And Jamie says, but Lannister friendship could mean a lot. And Jamie thinks how he thinks he knows what game is being played here. Indeed he does. Indeed he does. Now we love the mention here uh, that Rob says, father's friend, Howlin' Reed. And uh, well, they're the ones who give Victorian fits much later when he takes this moat Kalen um, during Balon's second rebellion. Some notes from Sir Buckley. Cat takes over from Bran as the uh, POV keeping an eye on Rob. Rob, uh, like Ned, can be forgiven for thinking that Lysa and the Vale would join the Robert's Rebellion 2.0 alliance, is what he's calling it. And Ned, in fact, has that same thought down in the Black Cells that, that, that the Vale will join with the North. He's, they're both wrong about that. Cat has learned better, but at the beginning, she would have thought the same. So, and Rob... You would think Rob has good reason for thinking this because Lysa's home and child have been threatened as well. Um, and, of course, you need to work together to fight against Tywin. So, and, of course, Rob doesn't know anything about Lysa. He doesn't know what kind of person she is. And he doesn't know how manipulative Littlefinger has been behind the scenes. Neither does Ned. <laughs> Although he sees how manipulative Littlefinger is as he's sitting down there in the black cells. He doesn't really think about Lysa totally too much. Rob loses Tyrion even before he has him, of course, which is too bad, and he's going to later lose Jaime. And, of course, in both cases, it's not really his fault. And that's just kind of the, again, the tone for Rob's campaign, winning the battles, nothing else going right for him. And this is a key parenting moment for Catelyn. Uh, She's kind of fighting herself in that she wants to treat Rob as her son and protect him, but also knows that, you know, mothering him in front of all these lords is a really bad idea in the long term. And you get this sort of back and forth of Catelyn being a great mother where you get to see Tyrion a minute later with Tywin being a bad father. And this just is really big theme, something that is, is not all clear the first time through because you don't see the full extent of, of how Tyrion has been impacted by his, his upbringing. And you don't know exactly where Rob and Catelyn are going. Sir Buckley also points out that it's kind of odd that, the, that of the way the three towers at Moat Kalen were distributed. Of course, Rob got the big one, and the Great John and the Karstark got the other two. It seems like 
Roose Bolton is the more important lord here. On the other hand, we had that argument before about who got to go first. Roose doesn't care about going first. He's he's in it to save his men. So I'm guessing this was just a simple logistical thing where they get to Moat Kalen, and the Karstarks and Greychon were there first, and they just grabbed those towers and were like, hey, these are ours. <laughs> no one was going to take Rob's. But uh, first come, first serve. And this is kind of like there is no straight pecking order, so these little these lords are always kind of taking the opportunity to one-up each other. So I kind of see it as uh, minor gamesmanship in, in that uh, sense. All right, a couple other random questions. From John Hagee, we have, the children may have been greatly reduced in number by the time they tried the hammer on the neck. Good point. That would explain why the spell didn't work as thoroughly or as well as it could have if it's kind of a joint magic thing where each of them is maybe adding a little bit to the potency of the spell or maybe there's sacrifices involved and with fewer kinda people. kind of makes me think of our, our series on Valyria. Yeah. Like we have like a bunch of sorcerers working to keep, you know, these volcanoes at bay versus the, the, the idea of a bunch of children just working together. Just magic. That's involving. a good point. Yeah, yeah it's kind of in reverse order. Like the yeah. Valyrians are, are tamping the volcanoes where the, 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 the children are sort of trying to unleash it. Yeah. But it's a very, you're right, it's, it's trying to control nature and that doesn't go the way you want. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to control nature. That's very cool. Abraham Gabayu points out a nice catch here. Moat Kalen has as many towers as the castles on the wall and used to have similar numbers of towers as the wall. He says 19 castles versus 20 towers. Now, if I remember correctly, is it where there are 21 or 20 castles because of some of them are abandoned? I think there's 21, but two of them were abandoned. Uh, as in that would be the total amount of castles that's ever been on the wall. Some having been abandoned. I'm not sure that it's 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 funky to count do that count because you you don't it, it's unclear which ones we should count. But that's a good catch. And wonder you wonder if those things were in place at the same time ever. Uh, so in a, in a sense, if you did have that, you would have kind of twenty castles ish pointing north, defending from the north, and twenty pointing to the south. And that just makes you think of things like the five forts, which other people have brought up in reference to looking at this place. It's not the same kind of stone. It is shiny black stone, but it's basalt. It's wet basalt, which is not oily black stone, but it certainly got a few people thinking when we, when we noticed that it was uh, slick black stone, but it's, it's different. Still, the size of the stones is very peculiar, and that's why I brought up Brandon the Builder and or Sorcery, because who can make stones move that big back in such ancient times? Well, the Egyptians built the pyramids. It's possible, <laughs> but still... Makes people think. It certainly makes the current inhabitants of the area really, really wonder. But let's move on. It's time for Tyrion 7, the one where the clans meet the Lannisters, a.k.a. the gang meets Tywin. We also meet Kevin, quite a few more clansmen, and just as we meet a bunch of northern houses in Cat and Bran's chapters, here we get several houses of the west as the wars start to uh, make their way to our pages. Chella, daughter of Czech of the Black Ears, had gone ahead to scout and it was she who brought back word of the army at the crossroads. Yeah, Prester, Craighall, Marbrand, Lydon. Speaking of seeing power where power resides, the clansmen have never seen anything like it, and they are overawed. New clansmen here include Chella, Ulf, and Timmet, in addition to ones we'd seen like Khan and uh, Shaga, of course. We get some more backstory on these clans, that the Moon Brothers and Black Ears get along well, but no one gets along too well with the Burn Men who burn themselves on purpose, in the history books, we learn much later that the Burn Men were formed from an offshoot of an older clan called the Painted Dogs. This offshoot discovered a fire witch in a hidden vale on the mountains and worshipped her. There is some, meaning strong evidence, that this was none other than Nettles, writer of the dragon Sheepstealer. 
It said that the burn men had to face her in her lair to get their burns to prove that they had the courage to face her. That was long ago, and Sheep Stealer is likely dead, Nettles surely so. So now they just use regular old fire. They keep the traditions going the best way they can. We also learned that the clansmen have really cool horses that handle rocks like goats. They're a different kind of horse. They're mountain horses, mountain ponies, basically. Different horses for different terrains. Tyrion gives the dead innkeep Masha Heddle an admonishment for what happened to him there, even though he tried to... even though she tried to stop it, which is kind of dark. It's like, Tyrion, what are you doing, man? And Masha didn't have anything to do with this. It's not her fault. But that's also kind of how he sees the veil. He's intending to bring blood and fire to the veil just because of Lysa and Mord and a few other people treating him crappily when, in fact, the most of the people in the veil did nothing to him and would do nothing to him. Yet, here he is, feeling so insulted that he believes the entire veil should suffer for it. And who does he get that from? Well, Charles Dance was an amazing Tywin. (laughs) It's good to remind ourselves, though, that he didn't quite look like Book Tywin. Both were tall and have the piercing eyes. Charles Dance has that going for him for sure. Book Tywin is blonder and has a shaved head with the distinct side whiskers without a mustache or beard. That's a pretty unique look. No one else in The Song of Ice and Fire really looks like that. And, of course, the green eyes flecked with gold are very important for Book Tywin as well. His, his gaze is piercing, and, of course, it's the same stare that uh, put, that one, uh, put that one lord off when he made that joke about Tywin uh, shitting gold. I love how George R. R. Martin writes the way Tywin wins the clans to fight for him. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of back and forth in the fandom about Tywin as a person, and I don't think it's complicated. Tywin is a bad person. But he's clearly smart about a lot of things and he's clearly really on display. His skills are really on display here. The way he just gets the clans to fight for him is masterful. Even Tywin or even Tyrion thinks so. And it shows off how much they have in common. It shows how much Tyrion is Tywin's son, even if there's a small chance he's not his sire. Kevin notably does not have this skill. He starts off by challenging and insulting the clans and Tywin's like, oh, let me handle this. Puts his hand on him. He's like, I got this, bro. This reflects that, you know, Kevin is a lieutenant. He's an enforcer, really. You know, he's, his, he's one of his right-hand men, but in that role, he's employed to do violence quite a lot. He's very competent, but not outstanding. He doesn't seem to be a naturally violent or cruel man, but that is how he's used. Uh, he came up under Tywin fighting robber knights, the, the ones who had become allowed to root themselves in in various places all over the West during their father's misrule. Titos didn't didn't handle such types, and Tywin did, but he used uh, Kevin to do a lot of the dirty work. With Tyrion, they talk about the war so far, and among other things, we hear that Carol Vance and Mark Piper, who we saw in the throne room telling Ned about Gregor's depredations. Carol Vance is now Lord Vance, as his father was killed at the Battle of the Golden Tooth, where Jamie's men won uh, because they had what appears to be a large numerical superiority. Joe uh, says that we really need the Death Star music for Tywin's approach, which I think that's pretty on point. He also says Tyrion is thinking early on about how he means to change the clans and how they are merely seeds of an army to come. This is the first real sign of Tyrion entering the game as a player. Before that, like at at Winterfell and at the Wall, he seemed to just kind of like traveling around, seeing the world 
you know, being a privileged Lannister, enjoying life. But something has changed in him now, uh, possibly the near-death experiences, possibly the injustice of the accusation about Bran, just other stuff, just being powerless, seeing what happened with him. With He's motivated now to get back at Catelyn and the Starks and other things like that, especially Lysa. Things have changed for him. It's, um, it's, it's more subtle because there's so much happening at this point in the story that it's easy to miss the fact that Tyrion has gone from not very ambitious to kind of ambitious or very ambitious. Also, I want to point out that uh, it's maybe a, a bit of a, a plot hole, a rare possible plot hole that when Tywin is uh, explaining what's going to be happening here and, and giving Tyrion all these kind of orders and telling him what's going what's to be going forward in the next few weeks and months or what's happening in the campaign and how he talks about getting a hold of uh, Cersei and Joffrey and how they're ruling things. He also mentions how, you know, if those counselors are working against us or if they're not obeying, then, you know, put their heads on spikes. So it's maybe a little odd that uh, Tyrion doesn't bring up Littlefinger's um, getting involved and screwing over Tyrion. He never really does uh, get a chance to get back at Littlefinger for that. I love the joke that Shagga tells here, and I actually kind of missed it the first time because I, I just misinterpreted what was being said here, but it's so funny. What brings you down from your strongholds, my lords? Horses, said Shaga. <laughs> horses, yeah, literally horses are what they rode down from their mountain strongholds. <laughs> Shaga is definitely top five funniest up there with Ed and Stannis and Tyrion and Cersei and Jamie and some others. He's also a really big man. I mean, he's no Gregor. But he breaks a sword over his knee as he calls a dude Little Red Cape. <laughs> I love it. Tyrion thinks how the realm will be different with Cersei ruling instead of Robert. And he is certainly right, though different is underselling it. It's why he gets sent to King's Landing to take over his hand. But of course, that's coming a bit later because we haven't yet seen the uh, the fallout from dismissing Ser Barristan and uh, killing Ned. Uh, and Tywin says what Varys will say later this episode, that Cersei is worried about Stannis coming for King's Landing while Tywin is fighting Rob. And he expresses that right here. The sooner the Starks are broken, the sooner I shall be free to deal with Stannis Baratheon. Right on. That is the key. Stannis, as Tywin says, is more dangerous than all the rest combined. And Cersei maybe doesn't quite see it that way, but surely... Surely? Surely see fears Stannis more than some of her other enemies because he is a tested battle commander. And, of course, as it's said, uh, as he says himself later, I am not without mercy, thundered he who was notoriously without mercy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sansa 5. The one where the Lannisters take over, a.k.a. the gang fires Sir Barristan. The one where Cersei and Joff make a lot of mistakes and the council helps them. Varys is into all of these errors, and Littlefinger loves chaos and making fun of Barristan. So, you know, some of the council helps them along with these mistakes because they like the fact that they're making mistakes. The walls of the throne room had been stripped bare, the hunting tapestries that King Robert loved taken down and stacked in the corner in an untidy heap. These damn tapestries. <laughs> yeah, the tapestries. <laughs> Littlefinger much later asks Cersei for some of these tapestries, which might contain lots of depictions of black-haired Baratheons, hmm? perhaps a weapon against Tommen. It's the best theory I've seen, but it's not overwhelming. So I want to know what y'all think. Littlefinger just has a real connection to that art 
you know, it speaks to him. It moves him. <laughs> and Cersei clearly doesn't see it that way. She's not worried. She, she, otherwise, she wouldn't have agreed to send some tapestries to him. She would have been like, what's he up to? I'm not reason is. So in the Winds of Winter, we may just see these tapestries and get a better idea why he wants them. Maybe it'll come out. It could just be a symbol of power. It connects him to the throne. You know, it shows that he has friends at King's Landing. On the other hand, where's he going to hang them? The Eyrie is closed for winter. He's down in the gates of the moon, which is, you know, held by Lord Nestor Royce, who he gave the title to. Maybe they'll go hanging up there at the gates of the moon. Yeah, little do we know. Littlefinger's trying to, you know, amass this huge collection of art. (laughs) Have an art room dedicated to it all, maybe. He wants to become an art critic. It's it's his real goal. (laughs) We cracked it. (laughs) So... Let's go back to the Red Keep. A lot of characters here are present. Most of them are covered in um, our Where Are They Now? Turning of the Hand. It's for, for patrons only. Uh, this time, all of the Kingsguard are there, minus Jamie, and eventually Barristan leaves as well. There's a lot of naming of names, people who need to kneel or be attainted as traitors. I might do another Where Are They Now? on them, but I think there's a little much overlap. So probably wait till a little later till some of these characters are, are rearrayed in a different uh, spot. There's some slightly off phrases here. I think some of the world building was incomplete. And I guess you just have to blame some of the northern, some of the, the court here for maybe not knowing all the, the, the proper names and, and whose families are what size, because otherwise we're just looking at some errors by George here. <laughs> he said, it says that Doran Mortel and all his sons, well, uh, have to come kneel. Well, he has only two and they aren't, neither of them are the heir. So it would need to be his sons and his daughter need to come give homage. Mace Tyrell's brother are, are, are mentioned. But he has no brothers, so that one's just straight up wrong. Um, Yeah, oh well. Ironically, the person most disgusted by many of the decisions made in this room during this scene is Tywin himself. Fast forward uh, a couple chapters to what Tywin has to say about this, which is in Tyrion's final chapter in this book. What sort of counsel are they giving Joffrey when he lurches from one folly to the next? Whose notion was it to make this Janoslint a lord? The man's father was a butcher, and they grant him Harrenhal. Harrenhal, that was the seat of kings. Not that he will ever set foot inside it, if I have a say. I'm told he took a bloody spear for his sigil. A bloody cleaver would have been my choice. His father had not raised his voice, yet Tyrion could see the anger in the gold of his eyes. And dismissing Selmy? Where was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old. But the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honor to any man he served. Can anyone say the same of the Hound? You feed your dog bones under the table. You do not, you do not seat him beside you on the high bench. Greg Oracle. Hold, hold on, Aziz. Yeah. Both when you made a comment during the, my my quote, and just when you started that, you were muted. I mute you often. Oh. So you can start that over. <laughs> yeah. So. Tywin, that is how Tywin handles his dog, Gregor Clegane, obviously Sandor's brother. He feeds him bones under the table, do not seat him beside on the high bench, doesn't show him great honors, just deploys him and uses him for brutality and violence, which is, heck, that's what Gregor wants. And so, just to mention, uh, anyone who's listening on the audiobook version of this, this is another moment where I think Roy Dotrice really nails it. He nails a lot of the moments. Of course, there's there's some where his voice is, is not right for the character, but he does a great Tywin and the way he handles this scene, this, this speech here is really excellent. Just want to throw a little uh, shout out to Roy there. One of the few things that Tywin would agree with here is allowing Ned to live. It's, uh, 
that's like, okay, at least y'all got that right. But then, of course, that decision is reversed later, as we know, thanks to Littlefinger. Sansa notes here, uh, she's pretty aware of the emotions in the room. It's something she's uh, got a, a talent for. She knows that people aren't really pleased with the elevation of Slint either. Not only is Tywin not liking it, but a lot of the other people at court are unhappy with it too. They also don't seem happy that Cersei just outright named herself to the small council. Though Littlefinger's joke about the naked knight made a joke of Barristan's dismissal. Everyone laughed at him instead of maybe being shocked at this uh, you know, breaking of tradition. Sansa thinks how Barristan's brother's laughing must have hurt most of all. But actually, elevating Jamie to take his place may have been just as bad. In any case, she's right that uh, Barristan is feeling not so good right now. And uh, being, being laughed at from a man who is very proud is definitely, uh, that hurts. That stings. So let's do the tale of Sir Barry here. I've given, I've pulled a, a really huge quote for Ashea to read. <laughs> and it's important because this is all, not only are there so many parallels to Ned here, but Barristan's story it kind of starts right here as he's kicked out of the throne room. And it's fun to follow his path, to see where he goes from here, rather than waiting for several books to see him tell Daenerys the story. Because it all happens right now. It's nice to lay it all out at once and, and not rather than break it apart, uh, break it months apart. So Gior Mormont will, in a few chapters, snort with derision when he hears uh, John read the letter telling him that they sent gold cloaks to capture Sir Barristan. And he's like, what? Why would you? That's not going to work. Let's again fast forward, though, even farther to A Dance with Dragons. Here's this lengthy quote for Ashea. Not only is it fun, it has a, quite a twist at the end. I walked from the throne room with my head held high, though I did not know where I was going. I had no home but White Sword Tower. My cousin would find a place for me at Harvest Hall. I knew but I had no wish to bring Joffrey's displeasure down upon them. I was gathering my things when it came to me that I had brought this on myself by taking Robert's pardon. He was a good knight, but a bad king, for he had no right to the throne he sat. That was when I knew that to redeem myself, I must find the true king and serve him loyally with all the strength that still remained me. My brother Viserys, such was my intent, when I reached the stables, the gold cloaks tried to seize me. Joffrey had offered me a tower to die in, but I had spurned his gift. So now he meant to offer me a dungeon. The commander of the city watch himself confronted me, emboldened by my empty scabbard, but he had only three men with him, and I still had my knife. I slashed one man's face open when he laid his hands upon me and rode through the others, as I spurred for the gates, I heard Jano Slint shouting for them to go after me. Once outside the Red Keep, the streets were congested, else I might have gotten away clean. Instead, they caught me at the river gate. The gold cloaks who had pursued me from the castle shouted for those at the gate to stop me, so they crossed their spears to bar my way. And you, without your sword, how did you get past them? A true knight is worth ten guardsmen. The men at the gate were taken by surprise. I rode one down, wrenched away his spear, and drove it through the throat of my closest pursuer. The other broke off once I was through the gate, so I spurred my horse to a gallop and rode hell-bent along the river until the city was lost to sight behind me. That night, I traded my horse for a handful of pennies and some rags, and the next morning I joined the stream of small folk making their way to King's Landing. I'd gone out the mud gate, 
So I returned through the gate of the gods, with dirt on my face, stubble on my cheeks, and no weapon but a wooden staff. In rough, in rough spun clothes and mud-caked boots, I was just one more old man fleeing the war. The gold cloaks took a stag from me and waved me through King's through. King's Landing was crowded with small folk who'd come seeking refuge from the fighting. I lost myself amongst them. I had a little silver, but I needed that to pay my passage across the narrow sea, so I slept in seps and alleys and took my meals in pot shops. I let my beard grow out and cloaked myself in age. The day Lord Stark lost his head, I was there watching. Afterward, I went into the great sept and thanked the seven gods that Joffrey had had stripped me of my cloak. Ned executed. Hold on. Oh, the twist there being that he saw Ned executed. Huh? That's pretty neat. I that's uh, I'd almost forgotten about that. And it's it's super poignant, not only because maybe you know he and Arya cross paths briefly, or maybe some other characters, but just the idea that Ned and Barrison have so much in common. Ned is. Not a great hand to the king because he's, he's, he's not uh, savvy with politics. He's great in terms of his moral character, obviously, that he's the kind of leader we would ideally want for Westeros. It's just he isn't prepared to deal with all the, the politics and brutality behind the scenes. Barrison is similar. He's a man of honor, and we see a lot of similar things happening for him as he's trying to be hand of the queen for Daenerys in Marine, where there's the similar things happening. Right down to a conundrum with who tried to poison Daenerys. <laughs> you know, we have uh, even even greater connections like Barristan sees Robert killed. Robert of the Black of Hair. And then at Daznak's pit, Barsena Blackhair is killed fighting a boar. And Bar- Barristan over, uh, sees that as well. And uh, while he's just watching and people are just cheering and, and seeing it happen. And um, so there's just so much they have in common. And Ned Barrison being uh, unequipped to handle some of the politics in a similar way. So I just think that's really neat. And there's more, though. Let's keep going. Uh, One part that Barrison left out of his little story here that uh, Jamie brings up for us. Jamie was amused, though unsurprised, to find that Sir Barristan had taken the time to record his own dismissal before leaving the castle. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple things about all that. Just It is really funny that Barristan is so proper that he was like, okay, I'm, I'm out of here, but I got to go write this down in the, right, in the white book. Maybe because it might be part pride and, and, and just as much as his duty because he doesn't want someone else to write that, especially because he knows who it's going to be. He knows it's Jamie's job now. He's like, well, if I don't write my story, Jamie's going to do it, and he does not like Jamie. Now... A couple other things about this long story that uh, we had Ashea read. Um, it's neat, too, that he... Uh, whoops, where am I here? It's neat, too, that he's... Uh, <clears throat> that we're talking about Varus and how uh, he's the one who informs Barristan that he's been given this keep and these servants. And he says it comes from Tywin. He says, Tywin has granted you uh, a tract of land. Well, that's a lie. As we just showed, Tywin was clearly against all this since he said there was no sense in dismissing Barristan in the first place. So clearly he didn't agree to, to give Barristan this tract of land. If he would have seen a letter saying, hey, we want to, can you give Barristan a tract of land? He would have been like, no, don't dismiss him from the Kingsguard. That's, that's the kind of response he would have had. So he didn't even know about this. Uh, so 
my my guess is he and of course Tywin wouldn't want Jamie to take Barristan's place as Lord Commander either because Tywin wants Jamie to leave the Kingsguard and it's not easier to leave when you're Lord Commander. So my take here is that I think Varys is speaking with Cersei's words that Cersei told Varys to say this and uh, because she is the one who made this promise about the tract of land because clearly Tywin did not make that promise. Uh, but but Varys may have suggested the offer, said, hey, Cersei, you know, maybe we should do something like this because he knows in a way that Cersei and certainly Joff neither know and or maybe don't know, definitely don't care that this would be such an insult to Barristan. He says, but I spit on your pity, a hall to die in. You know, he, this is such an insult to him. Varys knows it's going to be an insult. So since Barristan leads, uh, lends honor to any cause, as Tywin says, it's easy to see his value for Daenerys and the virus slash Illyrio cause. They can't really send Barristan to the Golden Company, you know, even though Fagon's their main guy, they can't send Barristan to the Golden Company since he's the guy that literally killed Maelys the Monstrous. That's not a, there might be some bad blood there. They might think they can smooth that over in the long term, but you don't just send him right over there and just let that work itself out. It just might not go well. Besides, they wanted young Griff to marry Danny. So if you send Barristan to Danny, he's fighting for them both anyway. That, that's all going to just come together if their plan works out, which <laughs> that's a whole nother matter, whether their plan's actually going to work out or not. Plus, Barristan is aware of Daenerys, uh, given his place on the small council, right? He's heard about all these talk about trying to murder her, and so he knows she's out there, uh, which he doesn't know that Fagon slash Young Griff is out there, probably, uh, assuming they didn't tell him. So it's a simple matter for Illyrio to give him what he wants, give Barristan what he wants, like help him find Daenerys, and by doing so, help win Barristan's trust, and Danny's too. Like, Danny gets to say, oh, hey, Illyrio just sent me the famous, most famous knight in Westeros to help me out? Well, that looks good. That looks real good for Illyrio. It looks real good for Barristan, too. It looks good for all of them. And if that's not enough, Barristan can vouch for John Connington's devotion to Rhaegar. Because, again, their plan is for John and Aegon uh, and Danny to become one faction. And that would include John Connington. And so someone who can vouch for John Connington being really devoted to Rhaegar is important. It shows that this person can be trusted. Uh, that may not happen now. But at the time, way back here in book one, lining all these pieces up, lining Barristan up with uh, Connington and, and his loyalty is pretty important. Now, one question I have is whether Illyrio and Varys knew or cared about the possibility that Barristan would out Jor- Sir Jorah. Remember, Barristan was on the council for all to hearing all of Sir Jorah's spying news. That might have been exactly what they wanted. It might have played into their hands perfectly. They're like, well, we don't need this informer anymore. We have Sir Jorah's been informing on Danny. Now we don't need that anymore. He's shamed. People don't really like him in Westeros. He doesn't have a good reputation. So getting rid of him might be a good idea to make Danny look better. And how? what better replacement for a shamed knight than Barristan the Bold? Like you go from a shamed guy to the most proud, the guy that everyone loves. So boom, that's just slam dunk for Varys and Illyrio's uh, plans there. So that's a whole lot about Barristan. Back to Sansa here. As Sansa said about Joffrey to her father, He's nothing like that old drunken king. And of course, that line led to Ned figuring about the incest. And here we have that same line because he says, from the mouths of babes. And Varys 
repeats it right here. And of course, Varus is talking about the mouths of babes. He's had more tongues from the mouths of babes and wisdom, but still, hmm. Varus said, a child's faith, such sweet innocence, and yet they say wisdom oft comes from the mouths of babes. So do the tongues that he has cut out. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's so gross. <laughs> God. <laughs> he, wisdom also comes from the, the sign innocence. language that they give or the ciphers that they write because they don't have tongues. You yeah. know, people eat cow tongue. Is Varys getting by on some child tongue? That's why he's talking about how sweet it is. <laughs> no, that's really dark. I know. I'm sorry. Damn. It is really dark. <laughs> next, next time I'm going to make you me- read more lady quotes. <laughs> 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 that was in this one the, the news that ladies bones had come back but i was like i'm not gonna quote that one i'm not gonna make a share read that <laughs> you could read it yeah no thanks <laughs> <laughs> now of course his purpose here varuses is the same thing that he's telling ned he's not lying he wants to keep the peace he wants to convince ned to lie that joffrey is the king and this is part of that he's trying to get hey Sansa should say that. Sansa, hey, you you too, Sansa. You you tow the same line. We're on the same page here. Let Joffrey be king. That's the peace that we want. Of course, Varys wants it for very different reasons, but he does want it. He is in, in line with Ned, sort of. So just as Sansa agrees that her father will say Joffrey's the king, yeah, he'll say that. Well, right after this chapter, Varys heads to her father to ensure that Sansa's promise comes true. So I want to back up to the Barrison anecdote and think about just put yourself in the hands of uh, in the place of those gar- guardsmen at the gate. They're like just sitting there minding their own business, you know, guarding the gate. And all of a sudden someone yells, uh, runs up and yells, hey, you stop Barristan the Bold. <laughs> stop him. Fight him. You're like, wait, what? I got to fight him? Are you kidding? That just ain't fair. That's just a bad day for those guardsmen. Yeah, I'm, uh, tough, tough, uh, tough life there. So uh, a couple notes from Sir Buckley. It's our he calls it our first real glimpse of the comedy double act that is Cersei and Joffrey trying to rule the realm together. They don't work as a team, and they don't work as individuals. <laughs> it's really well put, Joe. <laughs> uh, he also wonders if demanding fealty from the Martells and Tyrells is a bad idea. After all, ni- to this point, neither of them have done anything wrong. So summoning them in the same sentence, you're basically lumping them in with the Starks and Tullys. It's basically saying, you need to kneel, as if they wouldn't have anyway. Anytime the king dies, his heir takes over. From Cersei's point of view, this should be fairly normal. She's just paranoid about people knowing the truth, I think, and paranoid about people finding out. So she's using a heavy hand when really being more gentle and just kind of pretending everything is as it should be. It's like, hey, the king died. His heir is taking over. The normal thing that happens is you all come and give homage. But she demands it and says, if you don't, you're traitors. So she really, she doesn't handle it the way Tywin would. Tywin would say, hey, you know, velvet glove, come kneel. If you don't, then we'll break out the iron gauntlet. Cersei's just going straight for the iron gauntlet. And Joffrey's all about it because that's kind of his personality too, which shows you part of where he gets it from his mom. It doesn't get it from his dad, that's for sure. And I mean both dads. He doesn't get that from Robert. He doesn't get that from Jamie. Uh, he does get other bad things from Robert, <laughs> but not that. Uh, so, and in, and of course, calling someone a traitor, it, you know, well, if, if you're called a traitor and you have no kind of option, well, you may as well become one. Uh, if it's death or treason, well, 
you got to go for treason. And uh, so, yeah, the Tyrells soon declare for Renly right after this. So that was, uh, Cersei could have handled that a lot better. Now, it's interesting to point out Sansa's role here in this scene. It's quite brave what she does to step forward in front of all these people who are uh, so judgy. You know, it's a, no one was looking at her. Uh, she, when she comes into the room, she doesn't see friendly faces. So she's already kind of, uh, isolated and alone and not, uh, probably not feeling really confident, but she finds that confidence it's so important for her. She knows she's trying to save her father's life. And, uh, I think that matters a lot. You know, she's very poised here and I think that's going to be something that's a big part of her character going forward. And, uh, it's, it's the first moment where she's just standing in front of a lot of people speaking to the court. And uh, it's like Varys says, it was, it's very touching. He uses that kind of against Ned, saying you should have seen how your daughter pled, you know, pleaded for your life. She was so sweet and everything. And it's like, yeah, she was, but it was also really brave and uh, a harbinger of the kind of character Sansa is becoming. Very cool. One of the few uh, good moments from this chapter, like good moments. Of course, the chapter's awesome, but you know what I mean by good? Happy moments. That's what I mean. We get a quick moment of Dantos in this chapter, and it's an example of, of just how isolated Sir, uh, Sansa is. Because Dantos is like, hey, you know, he first looks at her nicely, and then I think it's uh, Balin Swan, maybe Boros Blunt, one of the other Kingsguard is like, does the old, you know, hand across the neck thing. Don't talk to her. Don't look down. And then Dantos kind of leans off and looks away as if he was like, oh, yeah, I wasn't, uh, yeah, I wasn't talking to her. So even Dantos, right? You know, you, and you see Littlefinger chatting with Dantos. Now, it's too early for them to probably be formulating these plans, but uh, it's great groundwork, as Joe points out, that Littlefinger is at least befriending Dantos or bringing him in, getting more comfortable with him so that you can you know, manipulate and corrupt him later. Planting a, uh, a seed of corruption, so to speak. A few miscellaneous things here. Cersei has referred, has herself in addition to naming herself to the council, she has herself entitled Light of the West, which is interesting because it's a title that does not come up again. Uh, so I wonder maybe if it does come up again, it'll be interesting. Maybe we'll see that. Maybe when, maybe if she flees West and, and, and kind of hides herself up in Casterly Rock, maybe that title will come back. Interestingly enough, too, with, with regards to Barristan, we brought up how he slew Maylis the Monstrous. Not only is that a badass moment, but it was... Uh, of an honorable moment, not just because he showed off how great he was, but because it was an it was avenging his liege lord. Selmy is a Stormlander. Maelys the Monstrous had prior in the War of the Five Penny Kings slain none other than Lord Ormond Baratheon, grandfather to Robert, Stannis, and Renly. So that is a big insult to the Stormlands that uh, this man killed their uh, liege lord. And so Barristan killing him was... Uh, Proper, <laughs> in a sense. Okay, making pretty good time today. We had an extra chapter. If it weren't for the extra chapter, this would be right around our normal two-hour period, but we've got an eighth chapter, so let's do it. It is Eddard 15, the one where Varys convinces Ned to admit treason, a.k.a. the gang drinks wine down in the Black Cells. It's called the Black Cells because of how dark it is. The stones are still pale red like the rest of the Red Keep, as Ned notes during one of the brief times, there's torchlight in his cell. So in so many ways, this is like a straight continuation of the last scene. We got Barristan leaving, and we've got a ton of Barristan parallels that we have. We've got more than we've already talked about. And of course, Varus goes kind of straight from that scene to, to here, to re- 
reveal what Sansa has just done and said and to convince Ned to go along with what she's just convinced to go along with. And, of course, the chapter starts off with a very lovely uh, sentence. The straw on the floor stank of urine. Mm. No, it stank of urine, not mine. But that's not the worst of it. When he slept, he dreamed. Dark, disturbing dreams of blood and broken promises. When he woke, there was nothing to do but think, and his waking thoughts were worse than nightmares. The thought of Cat was as painful as a bed of nettles. He wondered where she was, what she was doing. He wondered whether he would ever see her again. So surely the first time you read that, unless, of course, you saw the show or had it spoiled by some mean, mean person, you thought, yes, Kat, of course, Cat and Ned will see each other again. It's how almost every story you've ever read or seen would go. But we didn't know what we were dealing with yet back then. And, of course, with the now we do know, and we have different set of uh, thoughts about this. Now we're thinking more about, you know, we, we notice the tragic irony there, the tragic... Uh, plotting here, but we think more about the dark, disturbing dreams of blood and broken promises. Broken promise. I believe he might be talking about failing Liana and perhaps John. Perhaps that he was supposed to tell John the truth after Robert's death or something like that. Some part of the promise he seems to have failed. And well, until we know the promise, we can't know exactly how he failed. But the fact that he thinks of it as broken is a huge piece of the puzzle. So his thoughts turn to the tourney of Hall. Now that's a huge one. A memory that will, of course, come up as part of several different POVs throughout the, the uh, run of the books. Probably will keep coming up. It's probably not done. We haven't heard the last of the tourney in Hall, most likely. We get it in Jamie's POV, Bran's POV, and Barristan's. Of course, Bran is told by Mira and Jojen, who learned it from their father Howland. And Jamie missed the event because he showed up and then was told to go home after, right after getting his cloak. So he actually missed most of it. So it's Ned and Barristan's point of views that give us the emotional resonance because they experienced it. And they feel similarly about it. He thinks of how all six Kingsguard were there to welcome Jamie, their newest brother. Contrast to the scene we just saw where one of those six was just dismissed. Him, <laughs> Barristan, uh, and Jamie given his command. So, ugh, not fun for Barristan. So, but it's a really interesting contrast. Note that though Ned never thinks of certain things that would give John's parentage away directly, he does think of John plenty of times, but he never thinks of Ashara Dane at all. Not once. While Barristan's recollection of the tourney does include her. So it's interesting that we know she was there. We know all this stuff. And he thinks about the Tournament of Hall, but does not think of Ashara Dane. They both think of the tourney and Rhaegar giving the laurel to Lyanna, however. Ned thinks of the laurel itself, the blue winter roses, and again, the bed of blood and how Lyanna loved the smell of those blue winter roses. Barristan, on the other hand, doesn't really think of Lyanna too much. He does think of her briefly. He doesn't think about the, the blue winter roses. He thinks of Ashara and wishes he had beaten Rhaegar so that the queen of love and beauty scenario had gone down entirely differently. So in some ways, Barrison is giving us the thoughts of Ashara we never got from Ned. The tourney of Hall is also important because it comes during the year of the false spring and because it ties the Eastern prophecies to those of the old gods with the Isle of Faces and the shadow of Hall as an endgame last standpoint against the others that we spoke of earlier in this episode. 
How nice of Ned to give some of his last chapter to setting up so many other storylines. That's just the kind of man he is. Like I said, we clearly get more info on the tourney through not only those other POVs, but through the world of Ice and Fire. And there are still characters alive who could talk of it more. Barristan is still out there. He's still alive. And he's a POV, so that's a good one. But he's not the only one. Again, John Connington was at the tourney as well. So was Jan Royce. So he wasn't a POV. And perhaps Ariane was told some things about it through Oberyn, such as, say, how Yulia felt about being passed over. A lot of people still out there have information on the tourney. John Connington also has a lot in common with Ned. He's protecting a boy whose identity must be kept secret. And, of course, he, he thinks it's Rhaegar's kid, whereas in John, Ned's case, he really is protecting Rhaegar's kid. So, as you can see, it's this, this swirl of plot lines uh, coming together or starting to come together here and coming together later as far as the Dance with Dragons and presumably even later after that. The Hernie of Harrenhal casts a huge shadow on the past of some of these characters and the mystery behind it still fuels a lot of theories and a lot of fun. And of course, all these parallels are just overwhelming. I've talked about some of them in our Parallel Lives episodes or just in our Parallel Lives um, segues in some Fire and Blood commentary and we've got more with that. I'm going to have to explore this one a little bit further down the line. So let's move on to Virus's part in the scene. Did you have something to say? It, it was really dumb. I, you said down the line, so I was just about to make a dumb jo- joke about <laughs> down the line to Fogarty now. <laughs> it was I had to stop myself, and you made me say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I made Ashea give a very obscure reference to the show, uh, Garfunkel and Oates, which is a really funny show that only no had one season. No one would ever get this reference except yeah. for you, which is exactly why I stopped myself. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you should check out Garfunkel and Oates. If you liked uh, um, Flight of the Concords, it's got a similar feel to it, to uh, female mm-hmm. comedians that, that make funny songs and and, and put them into their uh, into the into the show. And apparently it's got it's guests su- like Seth yeah. Rogen and other people. Apparently it's the subject of our new podcast. Apparently, today. yes. <laughs> we are now uh, switching to a Garfunkel and Oates podcast, even though it only had one season. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, with Varus's part in the scene, um, it reminds me of Jamie, in a way. Uh, the scene uh, in the dungeon of Riverrun with Catelyn, because I mean, in both cases, you know, they're getting drunk and trading questions. Also, it has similarity to his conversation with Littlefinger regarding uh, making peace with our enemies and with going along with the Lannister deception, which is Littlefinger wanted Ned to go along with the Lannister deception, not putting Stannis on the throne. And here we go, same thing. Varys is like, hey, you got to do that. You got to put Stannis, you got to not put Stannis on the throne. You got to just go along with the Lannister thing because the alternative is worse. He's way more diplomatic about it than than Ned is, or than Littlefinger is. You want me to serve the woman who murdered my king, butchered my men, and crippled my son? Ned's voice was thick with disbelief. I want you to serve the realm, Vary said. Yeah, see, that's a much better way of putting it than Littlefinger, who puts it very self-servingly. He's like, well, this is better for us. You know, he's not thinking of the realm. Varys is just smarter than Littlefinger in a lot of ways. Uh, and this is part of why his reads on people uh, are more cunning. I think he's a little bit better at manipulating because he just, he doesn't have this instinct to make fun of people and to mock them. He's nice about it. I'm not saying he's a better man. I'm totally talking about his skills as an intriguer. And, I, and this is when Varus says in this scene, it's, it's funny to bring this up now because this is the scene where Varus says that Littlefinger is the second most devious man in the Seven Kingdoms. He's obviously referring to himself as first. 
And I tend to agree. I do think that uh, Varus is, because Varus's motivations are, they're less self-serving. You know, it's uh, Littlefinger's own ego and need to be a member of the nobility and uh, also his need to mock people. These are weaknesses in terms of getting what he wants as an intriguer. He makes enemies in places that Varus doesn't. Now, here's more of Ned, uh, of Varus being really skillfully manipulating. Uh, and then he does it in such a great way that I think a lot of readers miss it. Because if you don't add up all the plot lines properly, it's easy to miss where Varus is exaggerating or outright lying. So it's a, it's a climactic conversation and we understand it well. But as I said, there are some, some subtleties that can throw people off. Ned is totally ready to give his life rather than break his, his code of honor and the law but he won't give his daughter's life for that. Varus pushes Ned a bit by exaggerating how badly Ned's mercy backfired on Robert. He makes he basically convinces Ned that that his mercy is entirely the reason why Robert died. That's not true. Varus says that the Lannisters would have gotten rid of Robert eventually, but he doesn't really point it as eventually. He makes it sound like they were definitely going to kill him on that particular hunting trip, which we know is not true. We know that it looked like they were going to take out Robert, but it wasn't uh, a sure thing that would happen on this particular hunting trip. You could possibly interpret this as Varus saying they were going to kill him on this trip one way or another, but it just doesn't add up. Who's going to do it? Lancel? Lancel got Robert killed by just giving him wine, and Robert... You know, Robert's bluster took over after that. What, is Lancel going to... Was Lancel's instructions to, if the wine doesn't kill him, then stab him or shoot him with an arrow? Uh, that just doesn't work. Lancel isn't that sneaky. It's, I don't think he could pull that off. I just don't see that. So I take this as Varus just laying the guilt on Ned to push him where he needs him to be, which is to confess. And he says that confessing will save Sansa's life. But that's not true either. Killing Sansa would be a mistake for the Lannisters. She's a hostage. That has enormous value. And of course, as we see later, her claim has enormous value. So Varus is lying quite skillfully here. And he'd take and he and it's not just his lies. He uses another tactic to get Ned more compliant. Not only is Ned in pain and exhausted and feeling guilty, which Varus plays on to make him feel more guilty, he gets him drunk, which that's why I brought up the similarity to Catelyn and Jamie, because Cat thinks that when Jamie starts to get drunk, he starts talking more and more and saying more and more and revealing more and more. And I think that's where Varus is trying to go with, with Ned. He's trying to get him to talk. He's trying to get him to agree. He's trying to get him compliant. And if he spills a few secrets along the way, that's good too. An open question in the fandom has been for some time, does Varus know about John's parentage? In the show, he doesn't learn until very late, but it could be different here because Varus is very different in the show. However, in this scene, he does refer to John as that baseborn son of yours. And more importantly, if he wanted to get Ned to do something, which is definitely what he's doing here, he wants to get Ned to confess to false treason. If he knew about the secret of John, he could blackmail Ned about revealing it, and he doesn't. So that's telling. The thought of John filled Ned with a sense of shame and a sorrow too deep for words. If only he could see the boy again, sit and talk with him. Pain shot through his broken leg beneath the filthy gray plaster of his cast. Wow. Yeah. What he does do is hit Ned right where it hurts most. 
not I don't mean his leg. <laughs> that would actually that would hurt. That would work pretty well. <laughs> Cersei did that to Lancel. <laughs> but besides that, not only does he threaten Sansa, but he brings up one of Ned's worst memories. And it's so skill like again, Varus is evil, but man, this is just the skill on display of how he manipulates Ned is just so masterful. Varys, gods have mercy. Do as you like with me, but leave my daughter out of your schemes. Sansa's no more than a child. Rhaenys was a child, too. Prince Rhaegar's daughter, a precious little thing, younger than your girls. She had a small black kitten she called Valerian. Did you know? I always wondered what happened to him. Rhaenys liked to pretend he was the true Valerian, the black dread of old. But I imagine the Lannisters taught her the difference between a kitten and a dragon quick enough the day they broke down her door. That is a big quote. The Lannisters broke down Jane Poole's door, too, and her fate is as terrible as anyone's. We spoke of Balerion the cat and how much he has in common with Balerion the dragon and Sandor, the one who broke down Jane Poole's door. He mentioned Rhaenys, uh, though Gregor Clegane was the one who did for baby Aegon. Or did he? Varys, of course, doesn't go there in this scene. He's not trying to reveal that little secret just right now. Then there's this big line. Tell me. Why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones? And then we've got and then we've got the last line of his POV. The choice, my dear Lord Hand, is entirely yours. Yeah, so boom. It's really, like I said, super skillful Vivaris here. The thing about the dead Targaryen children, as we've seen throughout Ned's arc, is a huge traumatic memory for him. It's it's a source of anger and sorrow and guilt. And so he's, and of course, Varys is mostly, of all the things Varys is playing on here, it's Ned's guilt that he's playing on most. And he's even in a, in a, in a way here, he's Wait. sort of blaming Ned, putting Ned's guilt for the dead Targaryen children a bit on his feet. I think you literally just said a memory of sorrow and guilt. Memory of sorrow and guilt. Instead of a memory of sorrow and thorn. That's obviously. pretty cool. You're right. That's neat. I almost brought up a, a very seminal, influential series on the Game of Thrones here. And uh, so, yeah, the, the other thing about this quote, too, there's um, the uh, Sansa's life. You know, of course, that's probably enough for for Ned to be manipulated here, just worrying about Sansa. But he also gets... The notion of if he gets to go to the wall, Varus points out that you get to go to the wall if you do this confession. And so that is an extra um, bonus for him because he feels guilt about John. And he says, well, and he's thinking to himself, well, if I get to go to the wall, at least I'll get to talk to John, which assuages some of his guilt. But of course, Varus wasn't lying about that. He doesn't he didn't see the next part coming. He didn't know that Joffrey and Littlefinger would interfere and that there would be no wall for Ned and that Varus's plans of delaying would fall apart because, again, Joffrey and Littlefinger forced the issue. Varys had almost gotten everything to work out here. Varys almost got things straightened out, almost got to see Ned go to the black, uh, go, to the, go to the wall, but no. But no. The Game of Thrones played out a different way. It played out the mean way, not the, not the friendly way. <laughs> Joe Buckley says, I don't think Varus is lying when he says how interesting Ned is because of his honor and that he has met so few like Ned. Yeah, that's true. There are so few like Ned. He says that, um, Maester Eamon says the next, uh, in our next episode, he'll say something along the lines of, then your father is like one man in a thousand. And uh, that might be underselling it. 
And looking back, it's it's easy to see how desperate Varus is to keep Stannis away from the throne, given how he's just so much more competent. You know, you want you, you see all along that Varus loves the idea of Cersei being in charge, screwing things up. Littlefinger likes it too. But uh, imagine if you did have Stannis in charge. He would be so much more effective at repelling young Griff's invasion. So much better battle commander than uh, uh, anyone but Tywin that's around as far as on the Lannister side. And, uh, of course, if Ned were to lie and go along with the Lannisters, then they would have him not on Stannis' side. Because if Ned is on Stannis' side, that's another competent commander that they have against them. And that's not going to go well for young Griff if, if Ned and Stannis are arrayed against him. They would much rather go against these less competent foes, Joffrey in particular. Because uh, at this point, they're thinking by the time Joffrey is a couple of years older, he'll be fully in charge, and then the realm will really be in chaos because that kid's clearly going to screw things up. They would have loved to see that happen. They could, they would be happy with Cersei going away as long as Joffrey was still around, as long as Varys was able to live through that. <laughs> so, Joe also agrees that uh, with me that uh, this is this this chapter really shows off what Varys is saying about him being more devious than Littlefinger. Now, of course, he points out that you can't underestimate Littlefinger, but uh, he says, I see Varus as what Littlefinger thinks he is and Littlefinger as what Varus strives to avoid. Yeah, see, Var- Littlefinger is too flashy, too out in the open. His motivations are too clear. Even though Littlefinger does, takes pains to mask his emotions, he does random things, as he says to Sansa, to throw them off, to throw off people as to what his goals are. But he hasn't been able to hide from most of us, and certainly not from Varus, that he's wants to be in, in the nobility, he want, he hates the Starks, he hates the Tullys, he wants to marry Sansa, and all that stuff. That, he can't hide. But what Varus really wants, Littlefinger does not know. Alright. Uh, a couple of QA things here, just a couple of quick ones, and then we will do our outro. Tree Girl and Ben LaSalle both wonder how Ned could have possibly navigated his way through all of this. Which is maybe a sign that the government of Westeros needs to be reset. Not necessarily the Daenerys burn it all down style or the her father's style of, of you know burn them all, but some kind of reset to the government because it's just so corrupt. And yeah, Ned, no matter what Ned did, he wouldn't have come out of this well. And that's kind of what they're pointing to that there's just no path that Ned could have taken that would have uh, worked out you know, being who he is and all, uh, other than him just being a different person and giving in to corruption and, and becoming like the people he hates. All right, let's talk about what's next up. Things are really going to turn to more and more Daenerys, speaking of her. She has four of the final 14 chapters. The other 10 are two Tyrions, two Johns, three Catelyns, and one each of Sansa, Arya, and Bran. So, uh, in that time, we will be having Catelyn 9, The Gang Meets the Phrase, a.k.a. the one where Rob trades a crossing for a marriage. John 8, the one where Aemon reveals his past, a.k.a. the gang gives John Valyrian steel. Ooh. Daenerys 7, the one where Khal Drogo is wounded, a.k.a. the gang meets Miri Mazdur. Tyrion 8, the one with the Battle of the Green Fork, a.k.a. the gang meets Shay. Yeah. Catelyn 10, the gang fights in the Whispering Woods, a.k.a. the one where they capture Jamie. 
Daenerys 8, the one where Mary uses blood magic, aka the gang fights Drogo's blood riders. And Arya 5, the one where they execute Ned, aka the one where we learned how different this series really was. In just this next episode alone, we'll have three battles. One on screen, one partially on screen, and one off screen. There will be blood magic, execution, quite a lot of death, not even counting those big battles. So thanks very much to Ashea for wearing all the arms and handling so much. Thanks to Joe Buckley for the extra notes and help formulating the writing for this episode. Definitely check out Scraps and Scrolls, a.k.a. the Isle of Faces podcast. That's his jam. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods on the Facebook group for facilitating the great discussions that help us catch extra details and give us great questions to ponder that uh, get us deeper into our understanding of the series. Thanks to Nina for the timestamps and for bouncing lots of ideas off of me and, and being one of our most valuable commenters. Thanks to Claredox.de. That's Michael Clarfeld's gig. He does all of our maps that we have behind us. Well, almost all of them. As well as our video intro, outro. He mm-hmm. also helped us find Kevin McLeod, who we give thanks to for our Valor Ruiz music. And, and we're meeting him. Yeah, we're going to meet Michael Clarfeld in Europe in just a week or so. I mean, no, it's uh, oh, two weeks one, two, three, four days. Oh, four days, right. In no, it's WorldCon, days. not TitanCon. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, Heck what yeah. are you talking about? Not two weeks, not two weeks. <laughs> Less than one week. <laughs> Thanks also to Jesse Koval and Jesse Townsend for the regular history of Westeros music that we've had for so many years. And of course, thanks to all of our many patrons at the levels high and low. We appreciate it all. Everything you do for us is super, uh, super appreciated. We couldn't do it without you guys. And we look forward to continuing the series. We're almost done with Game of Thrones. but It'll have to wait a little bit. As we said, we'll be out of town and we'll have other episodes posting in the meantime. But we will get back to Valoritas, finishing Game of Thrones, do that Q&A with Sir Buckley and Lady Gwyn. And then get on our way to A Clash of Kings, which will be a different kind of similar fun. Okay, that's it. Until next time, everybody. Valar, reread us.